This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Six months out of date. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. As you can hear, you've walked into the usual shitstorm. So far, we have plumbed the depths of joking about Alina's cleavage and we've got to political satire that's just six mm. months out of date. Uh, tonight, we will be discussing history's worst family. And there's some real shitbags lined up for this one. Charlie's with us. Hello, Charlie. Hello. How are we doing? Printed uh, drafts of Barbara incoming. Is that right? Yes, so I'm both equally excited and terrified that humans are going to look at this for me and you have agreed to be one of them. So I have. I'm very much looking forward to it, actually. So this is just book one we're getting, isn't it? This is just book one in the trilogy. <laughs> Not that I've got delusions of grandeur or anything, but yeah, uh, in advance of the Netflix series, of course. Yeah, which is going to have at least a six-figure sum attached to it, right? And that's all costumes. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, very much looking forward to that. How has your week been? It's been all right. Yeah, I've been jabbed. Been Ooh, jabbed. I think, do the people who have been jabbed outnumber the non-jabs now in here? Oh, no, because Zach left. Yeah. About half the room's been jabbed so far. Yeah. Alina's looking very bitter in the corner it's there. Great. The Wi-Fi is brilliant. It's <laughs> fantastic. I only speak Russian half of the time. <laughs> I get the Windows music when I wake up. It's just brilliant. <laughs> oh, so Alina is there in Poland, uh, about to go into a full-scale lockdown with no uh, sign of a jab anytime soon. Is that right? Oh, my God. I cannot believe So we had 35,000 cases today. It has gone out of control. So they've locked us all down, which is really funny because I'm still working hard. So it kind of doesn't really cause a blip for me. And in. Uh, how's your week otherwise? Uh, well, your week has been uh, running around after people who aren't on time for stuff, isn't it? Correct, because uh, people don't know how to keep to a schedule and then call me last minute and go, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to kind of put it off. And then you have to, it's a mix. I hate doing this shit. I'd, I'd like to be a historian full time. So, um, yes. Somebody please sponsor her quick before she loses her mind. Uh, we've also got... Very excited at the prospect of Alina in here tonight is Obi Ginge Kenobi. She dressed up. Oh, you're right. She dressed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I, I dressed up too as well, but she looks a lot better than I do. Yeah, and little oh, did you know that Heather was going to sweep in and steal your thunder anyway, so. <laughs> Story of my life, really. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Holmes, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad. I mean, we've got Clive. Clive is the other judge tonight, isn't he? He is, yeah. So for the first time ever, we've got two legally qualified judges on here. So hopefully by the end of this, we'll be remembered 
will be remembered like the other great British judges, Judge John Deed, Judge Jules, and Judge Pickles, hopefully. <laughs> Admittedly, those, those references are probably lost on most of the younger people on here, but I'm sticking with them. More like Judge Judy. Just hope, we're just going to have to keep away from the obiter dicta, though. <laughs> I normally do on Thursdays. Yeah. The fact that you just said dick and the whole room looked up as if it was something interesting sort of tells you the crowd <laughs> you're playing to in here. Uh, we've also got, who else have we got? We've got Heather plus Kat, who's uh, attention-seeking right now. How is Cat mum life? Great. Your infection's almost gone. Your eardrops only have five more days of wrangling a cat and stuffing eardrops down her ears. <laughs> so my day today consisted of right for the I've, I've given Albert Churchill plenty of warnings about the crusty state of his chocolate starfish and said it's not acceptable. And if you don't sort it out soon, I'm going to go and buy baby wipes and I'm going to do it for you. And uh, in the last couple of days, he's had the runs. And uh, his his asshole is disgusting. So today I, I carried out said threat, which involved um, pinning him down and attacking his rear end with a baby wipe, uh, which, which he was not impressed with. But uh, I, I, we had to do that with Jabba early in the lockdown. He went through a stage of about a week of being a bit untidy, shall we say? But all I love that does... Jabba's got massively long hair, so it ends up being like a huge cow pat of. Yeah, crust. but all, all you end up doing, you hardly get any off. Because even if you hold them down for a while, all you end up doing is just m- making it damp and easily spreadable. It's a bit of a... <laughs> we've stopped doing it, really. I mean, he, he came in the other day and started cleaning himself my work thing and like a nugget of shit rolled onto my work pad. <laughs> it was just hanging there. It came off when he jumped up on the table. Oh, that happen in the office. And also, like I guess like most cats, like he, he thinks we're all his proper mates because we've all been at home for a year sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. I think Bertie's world is going to collapse when he realizes yeah. that I'm going to leave the flat again. Uh, anyway, so that uh, you have listened to a uh, Friday night segment of uh, History Hack hosts and their cats. Thank you for coming. Uh, okay, right, who does it? Oh, someone, someone in this room has just bought a puppy. Do you have think <sighs> this puppy has any idea how fucking middle class it's going to be? Like this puppy is going to be like, it's going to have tweed accessories. You could already guess who's bought it. It's going to have tweed accessories and <laughs> be expected to accompany its owner on like welly ridden treks across the Kent countryside and shooting functions. Isn't it, Marcus? Too damn right. And it's going to be called Monty. <laughs> Does your girlfriend approve of this or have you not given her a choice? A bit of both. Managed to slide that tactical uh, decision in there. Uh, I think it's more the names pass rather than the namesake. So I'm just keeping quiet on that. Yeah, we've already gone um, on the Rydell shop and ordered a couple of um, tweed and uh, a wax jacket coats. It's got it's got a London it's got a London poppy appeal uh, scarf as well that I, I bought. I'm quite so it's going to be fiercely patriotic puppy. Um, yeah, and I feel like forever since I've seen you because I've been digging away at the, the new job. So it's, um. You have. So you have been up to your eyeballs in BBC filming, haven't you? BBC like, filming. I, I can't say too much, but, um, if you like haunted houses and comedy, uh, you might, you might know it very well. Uh, it's brilliant. It's amazing to see uh, some brilliant, brilliant transformations that I will tell you about when it, uh, comes out in the autumn. Um, there's more developments and more filming inquiries and it's just, Great to be out in the countryside. Loads of new history that I'm going to have to learn from from Norman uh, through to basically like an Art Deco 1920s and even actually the very recent stuff. And yeah, there's a smattering of Tudors, there's Canadians in World War Two, and then there's just like a new historic house to get to 
kind of get to learn to love. It's kind of like learning this like distant relation. You've got to kind of like take it in and look how to, after how to care to it. So it's been really good fun. Brilliant. Uh, we have all the heritage management for you. Yeah, going going from someone who's massively passionate about their lovely job to someone who just never wants to ever go to work again. Beth, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. The irony being that after the many many rants I've had about said employment, um, the fact that a job as a senior advisor has come up and they want me to go for it, and you said hell no. <laughs> I mean, it's like hmm, but money for an extra a bit more money, hmm. Yeah, less time actually speaking to people as well. I'll get more time away from people. So a bit of extra cash, though, for holidays and stuff in the future. So Definitely. Probably you'll just blow it on sweets and booze, yeah? (laughs) Sweets, booze and Disneyland, I think you'll find. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also have James, uh, who's like moodlet himself as if he's in a music video. Oh, no, that's just normal lighting. (laughs) Yeah, um, not too bad. Obviously, the birthday yesterday, bit of a quiet one. Second lockdown birthday. Um, today mainly got a headache, probably from the painting. So, uh, yeah. If you haven't got a headache from being shit faced on your birthday, then you're just failing at life, James. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, true, okay. true. Uh, we also have Kit. Kit, who has finished writing his book and has now decided that his new obsession is keep fit. Yeah. Um, I thought I might as well get fit because I've become a fat jabber cakes while writing this book. <laughs> I've done nothing but eat pizza and slowly cry at a keyboard for three months. And so I really need to get fit. So I bought myself a bike. I'm going to be whizzing around lovely Southampton. Um, maybe a bit further out, maybe the new forest, somewhere exciting. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, but you said that you, you can't do anything by half, so you expect to be killing yourself at some point in the next few weeks. Is that right? That, that, yeah, I, I have sort of like a, a mildly addictive personality and that I just sort of lock in on whatever I'm doing. And well, you, you know what it's like. I, I got bored when I was in Korea because I'd been stuck in a hotel room for two weeks. And so I decided to cycle the entire length of the country. I mean, it's that kind of weird shit that I get, <laughs> I get up to. So yeah, I'll be all over the place. Are 100% a lunatic. We also have Clive with us. Judge Clive tonight. I'm just so, so excited about the prospect of being able to bring some objectivity and rationality to judging. <laughs> and what you're saying is you're drunk on power already. Absolutely. Also rather relieved not to have had to prepare a long presentation, which has been made my week a lot easier and more relaxed. Okay. So does James. <laughs> Are you going to do the judging with the Cockney accent? Cool, blimey, Governor! I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kit has had to mute himself. He's laughing so hard. Right, okay. We also have Heather. Uh, we did Heather, didn't we? Uh, Merrin. Merrin is the last Hi. one we've done yet. Hello, Merrin. Hello, I've been quiet here. I'm addicted to donuts now. Are you? Do you know what I have for later? I'm only allowed to eat half of it tonight, though, because of the calorie content. It's a hot cross bun flavoured donut from Marks and Spencers. Half of it tonight. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, apart from stuffing donuts in your face, how's Norfolk? Uh, how's Norfolk? It's been really sunny. It's really sunny enough. Earlier today, I was looking across because from here I can see out to the wind farm and up there is sort of three or four little houses on the right-hand side. And it reminded me of the light at Buckler's Hard in New, in the New Forest. That sort of ambery kind of want to go for a long walk, nice light. 
It's all right, actually. It's cold, but it's all right. Oh, lovely. Right. Okay, then. So I think we have fully caught up on cat toilet habits and cleavages and um, just the usual rampant, comically inappropriate behaviour of our regulars. Uh, Let's get on to tonight's debate, which is, as I said, the worst family in history. Who's going to go first? Not Beth, because she sent me a grovelling message telling me she's still writing hers. Um... (laughs) Let's go with, let's start with Merrin because she'll get us off to a really strong start. Oh no, seriously? I've got like half a page of notes and it's, it's, it's the worst ever. Don't build me up, girl. Uh, it, well, you get a pass because of the amount of effort you put in last week. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so. No funny sound effects. This week, we're talking about the family that stays together, slays together. We're talking about the Staffelbacks. Nancy Staffelback, once known as Nancy Chase, was born in Allegan County, New York. She met a Swiss man, Michael Staffelback, and they were married and moved to Missouri. So far, so good. Time passed. Good times, bad times. They lived together. Nancy, Michael... And their children, Ed, George, Mike, Cora, Louisa, and Emma, as well as George's wife, Cora. Quite a close-knit, bijou little little family thing going on. They laughed, they cried, and basically people around them started to die. As did Nancy's marriage. Nancy and Michael divorced. Bit of a dysfunctional thing starting to happen. Nancy and her six children upped and moved to a place known as Galena, Kansas. It wasn't a particularly great place. Man's life could have been in jeopardy going out at night and policemen never ventured out into the boonies on their own. It was that kind of bit dodgy, dodgy environment to live in. The family, as it was then, the six children and Nancy lived in a rickety old shack that straddled a series of abandoned mine shafts that had once been used by zinc miners. Nancy's sons were quite industrious. They weren't very bright, but they were industrious. And they soon get a rep- gained a reputation for being the local thieves and fences. Thieves, fences and murderers. Nancy, although she was quite interested in what the boys had to hawk, set up a brothel in the shack, putting her daughters to useful work. And over the years, she and her sons basically killed and robbed over 50 people. Didn't get away with all of them. The locally, local daily reporter reported Mother Nance and her brood of six, three boys and three girls, Gave themselves up to a life of uncontrolled vice. There was no sin which they did not commit, and they reveled in an atmosphere of the grossest sensuality. Them girls was getting it on with each other. Two of the boys invited a couple of prostitutes to stay with them for a few days. They grew jealous of the attention the girls were paying some of the other men who were making use of the back room, and they killed the girls and dropped their bodies in the mine shaft. Two boys came along and were invited to stay for the weekend with a few beers and the boys grew jealous of the attention that the girls in the brothel were giving them and they killed the boys and dropped the bodies in deserted mine shaft. Ed's girlfriend got a little bit uppity. Ed beat her to death. He and George wrapped their body, wrapped her body in a sheet and tossed it into an abandoned mine shaft. Mike, Ed and George attacked and killed a peddler who was stopping overnight at the house, divided his money and threw his body down an abandoned mine shaft. Mike and Ed were guilty of killing an old soldier who was known to carry a few dollars on his person from time to time. 
And their mother Nancy appeared with a knife and cut the man's throat open, after which she casually wiped blood off on her apron and suggested the boys wrap the body in a sheet and dispose of it by dumping it down an abandoned mine shaft. Nancy and two of her sons were charged with at least 50 murders, including, believe it or not, a miner who'd come along to check out one of the mine shafts. They were all convicted of various charges stemming from these killings, and Staffelback, who became known as Galena's Bloody Madam, died in a Kansas prison in 1909. It's not a very long story, but it wasn't a very nice family. Oh, it really isn't. Um, and not a very smart family either. Um, I, I love the consistency of body disposal, though. I mean, surely at some point you're going to fill up the mine shaft and need to look for something else. Yes. Yeah, they, they didn't have an IQ between them, basically. They were all three biscuits short of a barrel. Yeah. It was much easier just to dispose of a body down a mine shaft than it was to do anything else. When they weren't humping each other, they were beating each other up. When they weren't beating each other up, they were beating up whoever came along to interrupt the humping, really. They just weren't very nice. No, they definitely don't seem to have been. Holmes, what do you make of this? Yeah, there's a few similarities with what I think one that's going to come later, isn't there? Oh. I think that I think the body count on this one is higher. But firstly, before when they lived in New York and before the, the divorce sort of kicked in, was there any sign of this type of behaviour then? Really, Nancy wasn't liked by people. In, this is the point, actually. Nancy wasn't really, she didn't have what you'd call a social circle, a bit of a loner, our Nancy. Um, but no, just, it was pretty much when she had to up sticks with the kids because she'd fallen out with her husband, it all kicked off then. And then some of it sounds like it was for money, but some of it just sounded like it was just over petty, inconsequential things, some of the murders. It was much easier to cut the bodies up or wrap them in a sheet and throw them down an abandoned mine shaft, yeah. And how were they, how were their crimes discovered? Unless the mine shaft was six foot deep and they were like legs and arms sticking out the top. No, um, they, basically it was discovered because there was a chap called Frank Galbraith who was a miner who came along to check out some of these mines and they killed him and dumped his body. Um, and in following up on where had Frank gone, they realized what was happening. And then how? How come Nancy didn't face... How come they didn't face the death penalty for this? They were just incarcerated instead. Was that some sort of mental capacity type issue, defence? No, I think it had something to do with being in Kansas. Heather, does Kansas have the death penalty? Has it ever had the death penalty? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it like a to your state? In the newspaper report, yeah. it says... How dare that, you not know the, like, state laws of every single state in the U.S.? God, There's only 50. Kansas does have the death penalty. I, I, know, I know quite clearly that Kent doesn't have the death penalty. I bothered to look mm. into it. <laughs> We're doing med work. Yeah. Uh, Kansas does have the death penalty. Short life expectancy. Yeah. Clive, you've got, Clive, I know you've got a newspaper report, haven't you? Oh. Apparently, two two of the sons were sentenced to be hanged, but a, a newspaper report of the time said which meant life imprisonment. So presumably, there was an automatic commutation of death sentences. Yeah, it's not like they. You know, it's just slightly happen. odd because you you would assume that had this happened in England at the time, they would have all been hung, you know, or hanged. I was going to say some of them sound really well hung. Yeah. <laughs> Pictures are, hang- pictures are hung and people are hanged. Not in the Midlands, Clive. We're the best, we're the best of the judicial. <laughs> Clive, what say you? Marin, 
when, when you started talking about mine shop, I thought you were talking about Minecraft. I thought you were employing the tactic that somebody used a few months ago and just reciting the story behind a video game. But then I quickly checked and found out that wasn't the case. I mean, was there any redeeming feature among these people? No. They they were all like, I mean, it's like they went from Norfolk. They'd all got six fingers and six toes and they were humping each other's brothers and sisters. They, they were just horrible people. So they were a close family who could have looked Ooh. after each other and loved each other. Yes. A little bit too much. The family that stays together stays together. Slays together stays well, together. I think that, you know, that must be a redeeming feature in them. It's not as though they were at each other's necks and they weren't a dysfunctional family in that sense, were they? <laughs> Merrin's like, uh, what more sense do you Yeah, yeah. Clive, there's <laughs> incest. They run, a, they run a brothel and they chuck bodies down my shaft in the back garden. I've, I've had to use I'm them. just trying to look for the positives in them. I think it's just so negative that people always They're all dead now. Is that positive there. enough for you? I've, I've had to use the word dysfunctional in my life, and I'm not sure we're talking about the same sliding scale here, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were dysfunctional to the extremes. Right. Okay. Let's go like completely the other way in history. Let's go like hundreds and hundreds of years away and do Alina's. I'm really looking forward to this one. You're going to do Emma Southern proud, aren't you? I am going to do it. I've got such, you know, you don't know how many fucking pages of notes I've got here. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I've got a lot to get through. So I've done this in bullet points. So guys, be prepared. There is a shit ton of info coming. Yep, Holmes, get your pen ready. Get your pad ready and start taking notes. Right. Oh, Clive too. Sorry, I forgot about Clive. (laughs) (laughs) Easily done. Right. Anyway, moving on. Julius is the most fucked up family in the ancient period. There are so many of them. We have incest. We have rape. We have some of the most sick shit you could actually come up with. You know, so I'm going to start with Julius Caesar. I could have gone further back. I could have gone a lot further back, but we'd be here all fucking day. If you want to know more about Julius Caesar, we did uh, a down the, was a down the pub with Emma Southern, something along those lines. And she completely slayed him. So I'm just going to touch a little bit about Julius Caesar. So, Julius Caesar's relationship. So, for example, he married his first wife, Cornelia. She was very well connected in in, in the political life of Rome, but she died at the age of 28. So he kind of lost his first wife. Uh, She gave him his only legitimate child. So we have a bit of a sad moment in his history. He then marries Pompeia two years later. Um, And... If you remember, was it with Emma Southern that we even did this? Oh my, this is, this is going to go really bad for me. Alex, do you remember Publius Claudius Pulcher? Yeah, yeah, it was Emma because she couldn't right. stop laughing at Publius. <laughs> okay. So Publius now comes into our narrative. So remember, go back to a podcast with Emma Southern to know a bit more. So Publius comes back. He's the guy who crept into Caesar's house and dressed as a woman to um, get involved in the Bonadea um, Festival. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. Um, unfortunately, he goes in there to seduce Caesar's wife, which is Pompeia. Um, he tries to seduce her, and then Caesar files for divorce. Um, his mother hates it, sister hates it. It gets all really complicated, mothers and sisters and Julia's and whatever. Um, he's then married three years later, our Calpurnia, she was very faithful to him. She loved her husband. However, he was a bastard. Uh, he fucked anything and everything that moved, including Cleopatra. 
he had so many multiple illegitimate children. Um, Caesarian as well, the one of the ones with, uh, with Cleopatra. He ends up massacring 430,000 Germans in a day. He's also a mass murderer. He was ambitious. He fa- he waged foreign wars. He started civil wars. He became a dictator. He started the Roman Empire. People treated him like an actual fucking god. And when he died, it was even worse. There was a temple. He was deified. He had his own religion. He had his own priests. And the bastard kept just getting triumphs. It, I just, it's unbelievable what this guy was like. Yeah, well... I can do you one better. So, in his life, there were two Julias, his sister and his daughter. Both had a tendency of fucking around on their husbands. Um, just because his daughter Julia was given to three different dudes for political reasons. She was passed around more than, like, a spliff in a frat house. And then you have um, his his sister, who actually went against um, Pump against Pompeia during the Bonadea scandal and actually gave testimony against her. And they just constantly cheated and seriously just ran around sometimes getting pregnant with other people's babies and all that good stuff. So they're pretty bad too. So I don't think it gets any better. So we're going to go with Gaius Octavius, uh, also known as, ladies and gentlemen, Augustus. Augustus was incredibly arrogant. He got away with so much shit. He ended up seizing power and he became Emperor Augustus. So he was originally called Gaius Octavius and then he took on the name Augustus. He was so arrogant, he actually published his life story, the Res Gestae. He was in a war after war after war. Relationship-wise, he first married Claudia, uh, who was funnily enough, wait for this, the daughter of Publius Claudius Pulcher, so this incestuous shit gets even worse. Um, his mother, wait for it, his mother married Mark Antony and used basically used her for her money. Um, he ended up choosing his wife Claudia from a lineup. They had a lineup. Um, which wife would you like today? A, B, C, or D? I'm assuming Claudia was A. Uh, he tried to divorce her. <laughs> so her family raised an army against him. And uh, they lost, so they were exiled, and he divorced her anyway. His second wife, Scribonia, um, she was married three times. However, this is where it gets even worse. She was forced to divorce her second husband to marry Octavius for a political alliance. So she's forced to divorce the love of her life just for this arrogant prick. Um, he, she actually, wait for it, it gets even worse. He divorced her on the day she gave birth. So... Asshole number two. Yeah. But we all know who were the pants in Augustus's uh, uh, emperorship, and that was definitely his wife, Livia. Now, Livia kind of had a little rough by the fact of she had to actually marry Augustus while she was pregnant with her real, now ex-husband's baby, who she loved a lot, and said ex-husband had to give her away like a dad would give away his daughter. And... Uh, yeah, that wasn't very good. But she had a lot of influence over Augustus and, you know, meddled and did a lot of political scandalous stuff during that time. So, eh, was it all him? Was it Olivia? I don't know. Prick number three, ladies and gentlemen, Emperor Tiberius. He is apparently Rome's most hated emperor. I don't know how he outdid Caligula and Nero, but apparently so. He was sullen and antisocial and totally, utterly fucking paranoid. He killed lots of people, but 
the one thing he did not do was go to war. The Senate hated him. They forced him. Wait, this is another divorce of loving your life. He married the love of his life, but he was forced to divorce her um, by Augustus. So he could marry, wait for it, Augustus's daughter. He hated her. And basically they just, it was just an absolute shitstorm. Um, she was, as, as Heather said, she was having affair after affair after affair after affair. So the marriage became null and void. She was exiled with, funny enough, no men and no wine, which is such a tragedy for us ladies. Um, he ended up killing nieces, lovers, all of his bloody supporters, and he was an ugly bastard. Yeah. Um, we can talk about Tiberius, but don't forget Agrippina the Elder. Um, she was the original soccer mom. Very crazy. Uh, was convinced that, uh, Tiberius had had her husband killed to, um, advance his own children, uh, to the throne. Um, she basically worked behind the scenes to discredit Tiberius and make sure her kids were put in, into the line of the throne. But she was very vocal about Tiberius and they couldn't decide whether she was just crazy or crazy. Or crazy. True. Okay, fuckwit number four. Caligula. Oh, we all love a bit of Caligula. Total, absolute, class A fuckwit. Uh, he made so many enemies. Uh, he had little regard for human life. Um, one day he decided to uh, sacrifice a bull. And next to him was standing a priest. And instead of smacking the bull over the head, he killed the priest. I mean, the, clearly that's what a sane person would do. Oh, and don't forget, he laughed as well. So clearly that's what we like to do, smack people ahead and laugh. Uh, his mother was absolutely crazy. <clears throat> uh, he ended up fucking his sisters because uh, that's what you like to do. You like to shag your sister because um, a little bit of incest can go a long way. Uh, he decided that he loved gold. Gold was amazing. He liked to walk on gold coins. People had to throw gold coins to uh, satisfy his need. He erected a temple. He became a living god. Um, just to make a note, none of the other emperors did this shit. He did. He was an absolute loon. Uh, he would dress his statues daily in exactly the outfit he was wearing. I think I should start doing that. Uh, the first three months of his reign, he slaughtered 160,000 animals. Poor animals. He was absolutely fucking nuts. He killed his family, exiled his sisters, made his horse a consul, removed statues of the gods because clearly he was a better god, and he forced senators to run after his carriage. He ended up spending a shit ton of money, which was 2.7 billion, I have no idea how to pronounce this, in his first year. So he was a selfish, selfish bastard. Yeah, but his sister can't get off get off well actually she could and it was often with him but uh his sister which another fucking julia because we don't have enough julias in our life in ancient history um julia drusilla was his favorite sister whom he basically um relegated to a role as um his legal wife even though she was also married to his best bud but apparently that was okay so a little bit of swinging and wife swapping, which, okay, technically same woman, but hey, why not? Um, she died at 21, and um, Caligula was so upset that he ended up having her deified. So I wouldn't say anything bad about her because, believe me, that's probably blasphemy. 
I was going to say prick number five, but um, my notes here say Emperor Claudius, not a prick, actually a nice guy. He just mar- he wasn't an asshole, but he married them. So like Messalina, let's let's talk about Messalina. Um, yeah, they have this incest problems because she married her uncle, who was also the emperor. But more of the fact that she married her uncle. Um, but at the same time, she tried to overthrow him, tried to kill uh, Nero, and was basically the original cougar if we're talking about ruthless and predatory, not just going after younger guys, because she was ruthless and predatory. But was she a victim of patriarchy or not? Mm, I don't know. So let's hit Agrippina the Younger. She was very politically savvy. Allegedly poisoned her husband, Claudius, who was the emperor again. Mushrooms, anybody? Um, she was killed by her son after two aborted attempts that were so outlandish that it would give Wiley E. Coyote a run for his money in trying to kill Roadrunner. But you have that. Her and her son supposedly slept together, too, so mm, more incest, or is this just Eh, hearsay. But she wielded a lot of power, and people feared her. Again, also horny. It was in the family. We're at nearly at the end. I have one more person to do. Bear with me. So this is asshole number five, and it is, lo and behold, Nero. Kills his 13-year-old stepbrother Britannicus, because clearly a 13-year-old boy is a threat. Uh, kills his mother, Agrippina the Younger, uh, tries to kill his mother first, and then she, then he finally succeeds. He murdered so many Christians, and he blamed them for burning Rome, uh, so he burned them instead. He executed his first wife because he fell in love with his soon-to-be second wife, Pompeia. Um, at first, she was banished. Uh, she complained that um, she wasn't being treated well, so he tortured her maids instead. Um, Rome protested because she was really popular. Rome protested um, and they wanted him to remarry her. Unfortunately, instead of remarrying her, he signed her death warrant, cut her head off and sent it to Pompeia. Pompeia is his second wife. She is um, kicked to death while she's pregnant uh, by the ruthless Nero because he decided that's what he's going to do. Um, however, he mourns her death. I kind of don't get that. You kick and beat the shit out of your wife and then you mourn her death. Okay. Um, it gets worse. He decides to marry Sporus, who is a male child slave, possibly freedman. We're not don't, not quite sure. Got him castrated um, because he looked like Pompeia and he dressed as a woman and he took on the role as an empress in public. He then married another man, uh, another freed slave, and this time, Nero played the role of empress, and they played lots of dirty little sex games. He absolutely loved Caligula, and he praised his extravagant spending. I mean, anybody who loves Caligula at this point should be getting their head fucking checked. Um, and he was the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The next emperor, Glaber, seized the throne, and that was the end. Oh. Sorry, lots of information at once, um, and um, Heather decided to help me with this, so thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, right, okay, uh, mind flown by the fuckwittery on display there. Clive, you would have studied this at your posh school. Of course. Um, you know, this was a family that did, did incredible things in developing 
the Roman Empire. Now, of course, we're all against imperialism these days, but if you think of the territorial achievements of Augustus, for example, it was quite mind-boggling. And you know, Julius Caesar, you didn't mention the fact that he wore red boots. Surely I'm that sorry, must... would, you, would you like me to extend this another 20 minutes? <laughs> you also forgot to mention that he wrote De Bello Gallici, which is the book which we were all brought up on when we were trying to learn Latin because it's written in really simple terms that even young boys can understand. Well, when you spoke about Caligula... Exactly, I was about to say all. What, what all? And, and that's, all coming, the, that's coming from fucking Marcus. They don't use it anymore in teaching Latin. They don't kind of teach Latin about war. They talk, teach it about kind of nice things. You, when you talked about Caligula, you failed to mention the spectacular film, the... History down the pub award-winning film named after him. Um, Agrippina. You have to give Agrippina a little bit of kudos for being a kind of early feminist and for really trying to break the male domination of her society. Um, when you say that Caligula killed 160,000 animals, he was feeding people. He was giving meat out to all and sundry. That was jolly nice of him. Messalina, I mean, how can you be so cruel about her? She spawned countless imitators in history. Um, her prodigious efforts when she won a competition and shagged 25 people in one day led to the 1996 film starring Kelly Trump titled Messalina. I mean, things like that. Those are cultural achievements that have survived millennia of history. So I'd find your attack on this poor family, who themselves were all victims of incest and inbreeding, rather unkind. <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> okay, in our defense, though, we did say Messalina may have been a victim of the patriarchy. Mm. I just, you can't mess with the patriarchal education that Clive had, unfortunately. Someone who didn't have one, because uh, I don't think they covered this in the Midlands. Holmes? Yeah, no no, no Latin at my school. Barely any English, to be honest. Um, the, the trouble with all this, I mean, on the one hand, it's terrible. But on the other hand, you're like, it's the Romans. If they didn't do this, you'd be sort of disappointed. Isn't this a sort of standard behaviour for Roman times? Do you know what it is? But we haven't had very much ancient history on uh, down the pub recently. And even though I don't, you know what, well, I don't mind if I don't when I don't really care at this point. But we needed to get out some more ancient history. So that is the reason I've done ancient history today. And also, although although incest is quite rightly frowned upon today, was it was it actually legal back then? Or did they just get away with it because they were so powerful? The second one. Yeah. I, because- I think... What they said was legal was legal, wasn't it? Yeah. True, but Claudius had to actually make a law saying it was legal for uncles and nieces to marry. So They thought about sex in a different way back then. Sex sex was pretty different. It was really open. They were much open-minded back then. than than Today, we're really closed-minded when it comes down to sex. You wander wander around downtown Rome, you find phalluses this big on every corner. It's a great place to live. (laughs) I like Irene's like, you're so close-minded, go out and shag your brothers. I have no brothers, I'm alright. Get off. Elena, Chris is really (laughs) (laughs) open-minded. Is he really now? He's also red. 
And with, with both of your glasses on, you do look like you're slightly related. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the Medway. That doesn't necessarily rule it out. And Aline is in favour of incest, so this is... When am I in favour of Literally just being like defending. God bless you for getting some ancient history rep on here. Well, that was quite a marathon, that one. Let's do one more um, and then I'm going to need another drink, frankly, uh, because I'm nearly out. Let's do... Sorry, hang on. Beth says she has a peculiar way of eating Jaffa cakes. Do you want to demonstrate this? I've been watching this. It's weird. Oh, no. I've been watching it. It's super weird. It's I eat, you know, like when you're eating a Jaffa cake and there's a bit of cake around, like there's a bit of extra cake around the outside. Okay, you eat the rim, then I you eat the, eat the sponge. <laughs> then I eat the sponge, but like I suck it off the Jaffa cake, then I eat the chocolate, so and then I eat what? The... <laughs> that, is, that is the only way to eat a Jaffa cake. Are we, are we still doing phrases? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with that? How, how do you eat a jelly baby, Beth? Do you twist its head off? <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> yeah. There we go. No one's surprised. Oh. No, you, so you rim it and then you suck it off. Yeah, yeah, that, right. Just that's checking. Order. Just checking. So hold on, you don't do a full moon, half moon, hotel eclipse? No. No. Okay. Uh, and Alina, don't be so close-minded about the way that Beth eats uh, Jaffa cake. <laughs> In a 2,000 years, that's how everyone will eat a Jaffa cake. <laughs> it took me a while to realise that we were still talking about Jaffa cakes. I thought Charlie was suggesting rimming the jelly babies, and I was like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more horrified was... that England have been playing San Marino for seven minutes and haven't scored yet. Uh, there, there was research done into the eating of jelly babies, and apparently nine out of ten people do them head first. I do. I, I do them head first. Well, yeah. Want to do butt first? <laughs> <laughs> uh, They're only done feet you. first in science. James, bring some order to these proceedings. <laughs> order? Oh, you want me to go next then? Oh, with the Borgias. Ooh. Okay then. Yeah, a family that not only managed to be a word for nepotism in Italy after their reign, so to speak, not only did they manage to piss off the entire of Italy and their allies and every important family. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I just had to saw that from Kit. Yes, Kit, I am talking about the Borgias. Yes, and no, I won't be doing the horrible history song because I tried to do it and I just horribly, horribly failed. Do it, do it, do it, and then I can no. play, it. I can play it to like the whole cast tomorrow. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, trust me. Well, yeah, obviously, we're going to have to start with. Calixtus III, the first Borgia Pope. I know most people would think I'd start with um, Rodrigo. Oh, sorry. But no, I have to start with Calixtus because he started it all off. Because even though at the time when nepotism was not unusual in the papacy, indeed it allowed the popes to create a base of supporters, he made his nephew, Rodrigo, and his slightly older brother, Pedro, cardinals in their mid-twenties. Acts which then scandalised Rome because not only their use, but the ensuing debauchery that ensued. 
because young men. While one was sent to a difficult region as a papal legate and was skilled and successful, the other was given army command and the promotions and wealth flowed in. Rodrigo was made second in command of the church at such a young age, and Pedro a duke and prefect, while other family members were given a range of positions. When King Alfonso died, Pedro was sent to seize Naples, which had defaulted back to Rome, and Calixtus intended to give Naples to Pedro. However, matters came to a head between Pedro and his rivals, and he had to flee. So although he died shortly after of malaria, in aiding him, Rodrigo demonstrated a physical bravery in which, and was with Calixtus when he too died in 15, or 1458, sorry. And now we get on to Rodrigo. Oh boy. He was the most junior cardinal, but he played key roles in electing and influencing popes that were to come. And while he was a foreign outsider who had lost his patron, he found himself key allies and was confirmed vice-chancellor. While he was a man of great ability, this was also a man that loved women, wealth and glory. And just set about quite everything he could. Beneficiaries, land, to secure, castles, bishoprics, money. And while he earned official reference from the Pope for his actions, shall we say, his response was to cover his tracks more. He had many children, um, some we don't know the names of, but how, however, some we do know are Shazari in 1475, and Lucretia in 1480. When his patron died, and he, he, he was came to, he came to elect the new pope. He used his influence to elect Pope Paul the first, and what and sent as a papal legate to Spain with permission to approve or deny the marriage of the king and queen there, and thus the union of the Spanish regions. In approving the match. And working to get Spain to accept them, he earned even more power and support from himself from King Ferdinand. And on returning to Rome, he kept his head down while the new Pope became embroiled in the plotting and intrigue of Italy. And if anyone has watched the um, Netflix show Medici, you will know exactly which Pope I'm on about. He was he gave his children roots to success, his eldest son becoming a duke while his daughters were married to secure alliances. The papal conflict that sought Innocent VIII rather than making Rodrigo Pope, who he had still his eye on the throne and worked hard to secure allies, giving out bribes left and right, etc., and was aided by the Pope Cope causing violence and chaos. In 1492, with that Pope's death, Rodrigo put all his work together with a large amount of bribes and was finally elected. The Schwarzer family were allegedly given four mules full of silver, but also lots of powerful positions. So he effectively debased the whole church in this case just to get himself elected. He brought the papacy. As the second Borgia Pope, while he had widespread public support and was capable, diplomatic and skilled, he was also rich, hedonistic and conserved with ostentatious displays. While at first he tried to keep his role separate from his family, the children soon benefited from his election and received new wealth. Shazari became a cardinal in 1493. Relatives in a in Rome were rewarded, 
and they were soon endemic over the entire of Italy. While many of the popes had been nepotists, he just went further, promoting his own children and had a range of mistresses, something that further fueled a growing and negative reputation. At this point, some of the Borgia children also began to cause problems, especially with their new families. And at one point, Alexander appears to have threatened to excommunicate a mistress for returning to her husband. Of course, he had his mistresses in the church as well. Uh, soon he had to navigate through the warring states and families which surrounded him. He tried negotiation at first, including the marriage of 12-year-old Lucretia to Giovanni Sforza. While he had some success in diplomacy, it was short-lived. Lucretia's husband proved a poor soldier and he fled in opposition to the Pope, who then had him deport on the grounds of impotence and that the marriage had not been consummated. However, by this time, she was quite older, so it was clear it had been consummated. Also, there were rumours that she had Lucretia was having incestuous relations with her father, who was the Pope, and these persist to this day. When France entered to conquer Italy, originally he managed to negotiate and keep his own position safe, but at a cost. But he left his son as both a papal legate and a hostage until he escaped. And then we have Juan Borgia, I know it's Giuliano or something in Italian. He turned on a Roman family who stayed loyal to France, the Orsini, and he used his son, who has been recalled from Spain, to attack and destroy them, How this womanising son of his. However, by this time, rumours echoed to the excesses of the Borgia children, and one was assassinated and thrown into the Tiber. He was only 20 years old at the time. No one knows who did it, but the common consensus seems to be his brother, Cesare Borgia, who was very, very power-hungry. Alexander was con- really wanted his family line to endure, so he gave as much power as he could to Cesare. Cesare secularised himself fully in 1498, as he was a cardinal at the time. He was immediately given replacement wealth as the Duke of Valence through an alliance with the new French king, Louis the... What's that? Louis... Oh, God. Louis the 13th, 12th, something like that, in return for papal acts. And also, at this time, Alexander betrayed Milan, giving it to the French, whereas Milan had before fought against the French alongside Alexander. Cesare also married into the French royal family and was given an army. His wife became pregnant, but neither she nor the child ever saw him again. And also, before Clive gets onto this, because I know this is what the church has done, they've tried to whitewash Alexander's legacy and all the success he did. But at the same time, the success he did, especially with the division of Spain and Portugal with the New World and promoting the evangelization of the New World, caused so much death, disease and horror for the natives over there that we have to add it to part of the bourgeois crimes. I mean... Uh, to be honest, I don't think they're, they're as bad as the other. To a certain degree, they're sort of doing what you expected them to do. I mean, I think I, I'm ignorant as how popes got appointed in the 15th and 16th century, but 
I mean, could they just take power or do they have to go through some sort of appointment process? Yeah, they got elected. And while there was some bribery and influence, especially in the 15th century, um, especially with his election, it took it to a whole new level. And he also ended up selling a lot a lot of church positions afterwards to the highest bidder, which was definitely not a thing at the time. To be fair, Holmes, the uh, the bourgeoisie were built on the uh, nepotism. I, I think someone <laughs> someone's going to have to, Clyde, point out the difference between the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie. Yeah, please do. The term the, term the bourgeoisie comes from the same root as burger or other town dweller. And it means somebody who's involved in capitalistic enterprise. It's nothing to do with the Borgias. Oh, I, I, thought, not I much... thought James was on about the middle, the middle class, the proletariat. I thought he was... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my terrible there, there, accent, Marcus. There's not much that they did that the present government and the UK isn't doing with giving out, <laughs> giving um, money away for power and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, Jade. Corruption happens whenever you have people in power who don't have morals or principles. Um, I'd like to take you to task on a few points, though. You spoke about two people being made cardinals in their 20s and getting involved in debauchery because, as you say, they were young men in their 20s. Now, James, as I understand it, you're a young man in your 20s. Are you engaged in debauchery? Not at the moment. This is a necessary quality, <laughs> is a necessary quality of people in their 20s. I ask this as someone who's... 20s were many, in many the modern ago. day, it probably wouldn't surprise people. However, back then, especially considering they were meant to have careers in the church and especially in senior positions of the church, I think that is probably what shocked most people at the time. I, I was slightly well, disappointed that James, sorry, Clive, I'm slightly disappointed that James didn't mention the banquet of the chestnuts. Oh, I lost track. <laughs> is that code for something else? Basically, it yeah. was a, a camp, they had a, a sort of banquet and the, the uh, banquet of chestnuts part was they got 50 honest prostitutes after the meal to take all their clothes off. They put candles on the floor and the prostitutes had to walk around on all fours naked amongst the candles picking up the chestnuts. I guess the thinking is you could see, them, see them from every angle. Why did it matter that they were honest prostitutes? Well, I had, didn't have time to research that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> just, just wondering, like, does it, was, is a dishonest yeah. prostitute going to try and pick them up with her butt cheeks? I don't, well, maybe, I don't get it. maybe because they wanted to reuse the chestnuts. They wanted, they wanted 200 chestnuts back at the end of the night, sort of thing. Then again, Holmes, is that, is that what they mean by Paul's chestnuts? <laughs> uh, may, maybe that's why Shazari Borgia was a role model and an influence to Machiav- was it Mac- Machiavelli. He was the first Machiavellian How prince. How can you say Machiavelli and debauchery and not Borgia? <laughs> my ears are hurting. Can we call him Cesare? Because it's not Cesare, it's Cesare. Cesare. <laughs> I'm sorry, Marine. Oh. I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a dumb brummy. Brummy accent is not conducive to Italian by the sounds of it. No. James, James said it, not point, me. Another point, you didn't mention the fact of all they contributed to the Renaissance and their patronage of the arts. They were behind some of the greatest artists of their day and developed them as artists. You also didn't, you could have cut short because the Borgia family has gone on for a long, long time. You didn't mention, for example, Arturo Borgia, 
the Ecuadorian poet, or Rosa Borgia, the feminist novelist and activist, or Luz Borgia, the pianist and painter and sculptor, or more importantly, possibly, Rodrigo Borgia, the president of the, of the Republic of Ecuador. All of them Borgias, all of them who went to do good things afterwards. So I don't think you can dismiss the whole family by a few rotten apples, who, by contemporary standards, probably weren't that rotten at all anyway. I don't think they're buying the Borgias, James. No, no. Had you gone after the bourgeoisie, I think you might have been onto something, <laughs> especially with no, Clive. No, Clive, no, Clive would have me. loved it. <laughs> You'd gone on a full communist rant. Um, I suspect you might have been better off with Clive as a judge. Right. On that note, let's go and get another drink because uh, my throat is dry. And then we will come back and do the others. Uh, and welcome Kate, who's dropped in as well. Hello. And we are back. Uh, Marcus is risking the wrath of James by looking all bourgeois and going downstairs to get some more Chardonnay out of his wine box. Uh, and Spooner's in the house. You're right, Kate. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. How was the new job? Yeah, good, good. Right, okay. Oh. Let's go to... Let's go to Chris. Let's see what Obi Ginge Kenobi has got for us this week. I'm just hoping my microphone's working. It is. So, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> for the moment. Okay. Um, this might sound fairly similar, but... Uh, <clears throat> In 1870, uh, five spiritual, spiritualist families settled seven miles northwest of Ch- um, Cherry Vale, Labette County, Kansas, where it all goes down, apparently, including the Bender family of John Sr., Almira, and their grown children, John Jr. and Kate. Uh, they hold uh, 160 acres on the Osage Mission Independence Trail, uh, whilst John Jr. had another bit of land slightly to the north, which he didn't touch. Um, I'm going to come on to the family a bit later, but uh, on John on John Senior's land, they built a one-room cabin, barn, a barn, a corral, and a well, and farmed the land and dug an orchard. The cabin was part was a big one-room building, but with which was partitioned by a canvas screen, with the front half serving as a general store, come in in um, slash hotel that the family whilst the family lived in the back. Kate, the daughter, would act as the uh, face of the business slash storekeeper, waitress, and chat freely with the with the visitors. Uh, and by all accounts, was quite a beauty. As Holmes pointed out the other day, she looked a little bit like a young Carrie Fisher, according to the sketches. Uh, a spare a spate, um, a spate of travellers though had started to go missing from the region, and the town um, the town tra- trustee, uh, Mister Leroy Dick, I'm not making this up, Ben. <laughs> Uh, called a meeting to discuss if any of the township uh, knew any more about it. The Benders and a Mr. Maurice Sparks are offered to have their land searched, and a vigilante team was uh, form, um, formed, but nothing really came of it. This is when you enter in Dr. William York, a resident of Fort Scott, who uh, came to Osage to look for a missing neighbour, a Mr. Longcore, if I got that right, and his eight-year, eight-year-old daughter, who had been um, heading for Iowa, had stopped near the nearby farm um, and disappeared as well. So Dr. York comes to the town, says that he's going to stop and have lunch at the Benders, which was quite a famous, uh, sort of famous way stop. But he also disappeared. 
now, like Austro-Hungary and the naval race, I, I'm late to uh, trying to jazz up my thing with soundboards and impressions. Um, and also, like Austro-Hungary, I'm going to bottle it and not do it and just hide in my port all the day and just continue being boring. So, Colonel York, who oh, is do Dr. It, York's do brother... Oh, do it, Chris, do it! <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't write the script out in the end because I, I just I couldn't do um, my old boss's voice <laughs> for that long. Um, Colonel York arrived in Os- the Osage Township on the 24th of April and began asking questions of, of the locals as to where his brother had gone the previous month. He arrived at the, he was directed towards the Benders property where he came across John Jr., who was reading the Bible apparently. He told the Colonel that his brother had stayed for lunch, that Kate had served him, and then he had left the same day but had been killed by an unknown shooter. But John Jr. offered that if he was escorted by um, the colonel and the 50-odd vigilante team that had come with him, then he would go up to Drum Creek and show him where he thought the guy had been um, shot. When they get to the creek, there is a freshly dug grave. The colonel orders the the grave dug up. Bones are found. The bones of a pig, not turpits. On returning to the Bender's farm, he was met by the rest of the family, and the following descriptions were laid onto the record. John Sr., was aged about 60 years old with a thick black beard and shaggy long hair and often referred to as a woolly looking man with deep set piercing eyes who spoke rarely. But when he did, it was a thick, with a thick guttural accent, possibly German, hoping Dutch. Mar Bender was a raw boned, thick gut, um, with a the thick built woman with a guttural accent who spoke very little English until she wanted to be understood. Heavy set, very unfriendly with sinister eyes. She was oft referred to by neighbours as a she-devil. She was also claimed to be a medium of sorts and lay curses or charms. She, ha- she ran the whole household with a fa- in a fairly tyrannical fashion. John Jr. was considered to be weak-minded, often in a world of his own and laughing at, at something unknown. He spoke good English, but with a German-Dutch accent. Kate, as I've said, was a beauty with a ready smile and was known to practice free love locally, and some were rumoured with her own brother. She was a spiritualist and a medium who would give lectures at the nearby schoolhouse to settlers about spiritualism, hold seances and discuss beliefs, including the justification of murder, as well as free love. York was not impressed by the family, but Kate offered to contact the spirits and try to find his brother, but not with the posse outside, as they were unbelievers. And he should and he should return alone in five days time, to which the colonel agreed. A few days later, a a town meeting and town meeting was called and it was decided to search every property for evidence but notably the benders were missing about the same time a neighbor noticed a pl- the place was quiet and the animals had not been fed or watered and he rode into town uh, to let leroy dick know uh, york led his posse to the farm and began to search with the cabin devoid of food clothing and personal possessions it was clear that the benders had made their escape they had however left one thing behind a foul stench that emanated from a trap door in the floor. When this was ripped up, it was discovered that there was a six-foot hole filled with clotted blood, but no bodies. The men took to probing the earth out in the, out in the fields with metal rods to see if the, there were bodies were buried underneath. But it didn't take too long. First person found, face down, with his feet scarcely covered, was Dr. York. His head staved in and his throat slashed from ear to ear. The digging and probing went on into the next day, and more bodies were discovered in what was soon christened Hell's Half Acre. Lochner was found and his daughter, 
which the Kansas City um, Times would later report this. The little girl was probably eight years of age and had sunny hair and some traces of beauty in, on her countenance and was not yet entirely disfigured by decay. One arm was broken. The breastbone had been driven in. The right, knew, um, the right knee had been wrenched from its socket and the leg doubled up under the body. Nothing like this sickening series of crimes had been tra- recorded in the whole of history of, of this country. To make it even worse, the wounds sustained by this girl were not enough to have killed her. She'd actually been buried alive. Uh, other identifiable people, uh, including uh, Henry McKenzie, Ben Brown, W.F. McCarty and John Geary. Johnny Boyle's body was also found in the well. And there were two unidentified corpses, a man and a woman, with four more unidentifiable uh, found down by Drum Creek, as well as an assortment of bones from other people unknown. The MO of the, the moment, uh, the MO of the killers was really simple. The travelers would enter and be charmed by Kate as they sat with their backs to the canvas sheet. They would then be struck on the back of the head with a hammer by one of the two men. The body and possessions were then rifled, the body put over the hole, um, in the hole in the floor, where Kate would then slit the throat and drain the blood into the ground. The body was then tossed into the hole and then later buried at, lo- at night. It's estimated that the benders made around about $4,600, two teams of horses and wagons and a pony, which leads investigators to believe that they killed not so much for the money, but you know for the sheer bloody sport of being able to. Uh, I, I could read out a long list of the victims, well, how James went on for 20 minutes, so yeah, sure, why not? Uh, May 1871, Mr. Jones's body was found at Drum Creek with a crushed skull and throat cut. 2nd and 3rd of February 1872, two unidentified men found on the prairie in February with crushed skulls and throats cut. December 1872, Ben Brown, uh, December, another one, W.F. McCready. Henry McKenzie, six, December 1872, they went on a bit of a killing spree that month, uh, including Johnny Boyle, who had $850 on him. I could go on, but I'm boring myself. Um, <clears throat> a combined bounty of at least $3,000 was put out on, on the benders. And although there were uh, beliefs that they were spotted all over the place and there were rumours that people they had been caught and lynched, they were never actually properly found. But what the what makes this even more chilling is what I read about the eight-year-old girl. If you check the census, she wasn't eight years old. She was 18 months old. They did this to just a, a toddler. Um, well, you've got the Borgers and the Caesars who obviously were trying to who commit acts of evil or, believe, or um, prescribe as evil to further the family, to, to make money, to gain influence, to do what they think is right, you know, to will do for their version of good. But then you've got people like like the Benders who who aren't even doing this for the money. They're doing it for the sheer kicks of killing people and children and innocent people. And for me, that's more of an ultimate evil and wickedness than just doing it for the money or generationally to try and improve your family's lot. A very good point and so eloquently made and with such determination that you completely missed Alina flashing her cleavage at you while you were doing it. Oh, no. <laughs> she did say she'd booby one more time at the end so that uh, that this was your last chance to be appreciative of it. <laughs> Holmes, I, I, uh, what I, the I, fuck is wrong with Kansas? I, I like this one. I, I read it earlier. Chris, you may have mentioned, I don't think you did, but I mean, the, um, they weren't a proper family anyway, were they? 
Well, no. Is it like Manson? As in, as in, as in the, the John Senior and the wife weren't actually married. And no, wasn't, no. Wasn't, wasn't the wife the, the the daughter was actually the daughter of the wife, but from a previous relationship where there are doubts as to whether you know as to whether she actually killed her uh, previous uh, partners as well, isn't isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's believed that um, Mar, Mar Bender had killed her previous husband um, and John Jr. was actually Kate's husband. So they were still kind of a family, but not in the way that they were believed to be a family by um, people like Mr. Dick. <laughs> well, the, other thing when I, the other thing when I looked at it earlier, which is quite staggering, is that when, after they fled, um, their one, one-roomed house became like a tourist sensation and was like ripped down. Everyone wanted a piece of it. Yeah, they, they destroyed uh, it. got ripped apart in a matter of days by souvenir hunters just ripping bits of wood off and keeping it i, I believe the, the hammers are now on display which is kind of crazy it's like everyone going to harold chipman's house and taking a piece of it it is kansas maybe there's yeah. something else to do <laughs> and then i guess it's only fair because this is it's actually quite similar to merrin's and the, the shuffleback so what what would you say distinguishes this from Merrin's? Um, not much, but I would go with, I would maybe Merrin's were more into money and there was, uh, and making money, whereas mine were just psychopaths. There's absolutely nothing known about what happened to them afterwards. There, there are rumors, there's, but there, one rumor was that, uh, Mar and Kate killed John Sr. There's another rumour that John Jr. and Kate disappeared off south and then died later in the 20th century. Plenty of people said that they were present when they were beheaded and were lynched and then beheaded and their bodies tossed in the creek. So there's no concrete evidence as to what happened to them. Because if they did disappear... Which makes it even worse that they got away with it. Well, if they went and lived happy lives afterwards and without... Con- conducting more mass murders, is it possible that they found redemption? Yeah, or they got better at getting rid of bodies. Um, they learned from their previous mistakes. I, I, I'd like, I'd, I'd like to believe that they were lynched. I know that sounds awful, but I'd really like to believe that they were caught, uh, that they were caught, and faced some form of justice, even if it wasn't proper justice. So, was there a big spiritualist movement coming over from Germany and heading into the Midwest at the time? Chris is like um, uh, <laughs> that. I couldn't. I can say there were. Um, pockets, can I call a friend? <laughs> yeah, there were pockets in different areas. One of them was uh, Texas, sort of just um, in between San Antonio and Austin, was very Germanic and stuff. Uh, I believe there were quite a lot of Germans up in Minnesota as well. There yeah, are. Well, it's all like Fargo, there. isn't it? Yeah. I think that's a really, a really good contender, and they do seem like a rum bunch of people uh but <laughs> moving the goalposts or do you see it chris yeah yeah I did yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'll get me to the rest of the night oh, uh moving the goalposts slightly as we failed to notice yeah two chelsea supporting judges what heather's bought herself with her birthday money <laughs> oh wow i, thought I, I, I would like to be not that easily influenced but that would be incorrect so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Heather has gone and bought herself a Chelsea top with her birthday money, which means that she's definitely a regular now and always welcome in the pub. Right, okay, let's go to 
let's do Marcus next before he gets too pissed. That's uh, my modus operandi. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do short and sweet Italian crime family. I think a most evil uh, family should be an Italian crime family. The Godfather has taught us that much. Uh, so we've got the Godfather at the top. We've got Carlo, married to a real matriarch, Maria Leziana. And they have a lot of children. I mean, Italian crime family, they're gonna. So we've got Giuseppe, who's uh, the looter. Luciano, who mostly lives in exile. Girolamo, the romantic. Maria Anna, she's a sharp-tongued politician. Luigi, I mean... We've got to have a Luigi. Uh, he's quite loyal. He's actually loyal. Uh, Pauline. Let's not slut shame here. She's just a lover. Maria, the queen, noble queen, and Napoleoni. Yes, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, we've got the most Italian sounding names. They're all their birth names uh, of the Bonapartes. Uh, so we actually have later on Joseph, Lucien, Jerome, Elisa, Louis, Pauline still bought Pauline, Caroline and uh, Boney himself. Between them, they amassed some of the biggest headcount of anyone here. Uh, literally millions killed. Estimates are somewhere between three and ten million killed in their name. Uh, but conservative figures around the five million mark. But we're actually onto the individual crimes. Uh, the, the looting is just astronomical. Uh, what Joseph uh, does in Spain, a country that he's kind of meant to be ruling uh, for his, you know, for the people, is he's just breaking art out of frames, uh, taking them back to Paris for its own benefit. I'm sure we can throw some shade onto the British Museum, as most people do. But if you want to go to Paris and see some international art, there's a reason uh, that there's so much there to see. Uh, they really were uh, this start of, well, the Monuments Men the real loot that was going on uh, in the 1940s and 50s, this was on a much bigger scale given the size of the population. Not only were people uh, asked at the point of bayonet for donations, but things were taken and rolled straight back into military operations. They also were pretty incompetent. So they were being put into huge positions of power, Dukes, duchesses, princes, princesses, and then we're ruling over nations uh, for not only their own benefits, but for the crime bosses himself, Napoleon's benefits. Uh, in so doing so, they run countries into the ground, destroyed economies, conscripted uh, young men and then eventually older men into and then really young boys uh, into armies to go off and die uh, in places as far away as frozen wastes of Russia from the Netherlands, from parts of Italy that wasn't unified states, Germany and so on. A few of them actually rebelled. Hence, we've got a few exiles uh, in there. Um, people like Lucian, who actually tried to run away. And uh, that's what kind of makes it the most tragic for me, is that there are really two in there that didn't really want to be in there. Uh, Lucian, um, who ends up being exiled, I said, and Jerome. And what's most tragic about Jerome is he does actually marry for love. He does marry an American lady and he is forced by Napoleon to actually divorce her. So it's kind of like a little personal tragedy. And if we're talking about like the evils of, you know, heartbreak, it hurts. Let's face it. Um, 
but also the millions that died in their name. And the return, don't get me started on the 100 days, completely wasted uh, of life. So, yeah, for the sheer scale of empire from um, almost Portugal to far-flung Russia, uh, they actually had control over, uh, well, not Russia, but they had control over all of Eastern Europe, from Poland uh, through to most of, uh, lots of Scandinavia, down to Italy, the Kingdom of Naples, uh, both parts of it. Uh, they really had the world's biggest crime family going on, pouring all of that loot, all of that wealth into personal gain, into Paris uh, to fill their coffers. Uh, and then we just have a list of, you know, extramarital affairs, especially Pauline um, and uh, Napoleon, um, just going on. So they break all the sins in the old-fashioned ways on a very grand scale. So that's my contender. Simple, Napoleon, Bonaparte, done. Isn't that thing about the brother a plot in Hornblower? Yeah, it's actually relatively accurate in Hornblower. They end up on his boat, don't they? Apart from that bit, mm-hmm. obviously, Hornblower. Yeah, yeah they, he did try to... Um, Escape with his wife, and uh, Napoleon actually intercepted, uh, made the decision himself. It wasn't Horatio Hornblower, funny enough. It, that's what's most tragic. It was it was Napoleon who kind of said, "No, you can't marry for love. I need you to marry some princess." And then he was kind of like marrying off his his sisters to his best friends to keep them loyal. It gets really weird at certain points. Clive, undoubtedly Napoleon's a massive dick, but is his family the worst in history? He was a total dick and did wonderful things by kind of destroying France for a long time. Um, one of the worst things he did, obviously, was the French Civil Code. But <laughs> you're never going to let that go, are you? No. <laughs> Clive, you just going on so much in my estimation, I forgot about that. <laughs> but I mean, are they really the worst? You have, I mean, you look at the whole family. You get people like Napoleon the Third, who was also a dick, but. There are bigger dicks. What's quite interesting is that Napoleon VI is still around, except there are two Napoleon VI, which is all a little bit bizarre, because why would you have a father and a son who are both Napoleon VI and both alive at the same time? I don't know. And they both call themselves Royal Highness, even though it's a republic and they have no entitlement to use a title. But the older Napoleon VI has stood as a left-wing politician in Corsica, which is good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, they are, as you say, they're a ghastly bunch, but there are worse. There must be worse out there. Holmes. Yeah, I'm not massively convinced by this. I mean, there was two minutes of superfluous bullshit at the start about names, which sort of slightly put me off. And, <laughs> um, and then, um, but this is just another another chance for you to have a pop at Napoleon. We're only talking. Oh, about... I didn't even hide it. <laughs> We're, you're only in talking. My, about in my defence, I went onto each of their biographies and found their Italian name, and so I count that as research. Yeah, it was irrelevant, really. But I mean, yeah. it was um, you just it was just one generation, wasn't it, as well? Well, like Clive said, Napoleon the third. I mean, Napoleon the second uh, dies very young. His like adolescent years, and the Pope, the, no, Napoleon III was a massive dick. Um, tries to overthrow. I mean, I didn't really want to go down generations. Napoleon III tries to overthrow uh, the Bourbons and is really bad at it, but ends up getting into emperor anyway, and then kind of losing the kingdom. He dies down in um in Orpington because he ends up being exiled after a failed war against Germany. But, 
But he did build a beautiful house in Biarritz, which is now a really good hotel we stayed at some years ago. Would recommend. I love that you say in one breath, you say about the marvellous left-wing connotations of the Napoleonic <laughs> descendant. <laughs> and in the next mouthful, you're talking about your fucking hotel in Biarritz. I love you, Clive. I think also, it's, got a Michelin, it's got a Michelin-starred restaurant. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, no one else can come near me, but I mean, fucking socialists. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think the other final final nail in the coffin of this argument is you can't if you you can't accuse a French person of, of having an extramarital affair as if that's a wrong. <laughs> it's just surely you covered that with French. Yeah. <laughs> when, when my elder daughter was four or five, she came home from school one day and explained to, her, to us that she'd learnt in class that day why the French are all so short. And she'd been told by her teacher that the French are all short because Napoleon took La Grande Armée to Moscow and they were the tallest and strongest among French youth. And they all died out and after that, the gene pool in France was reduced. I thought this is wonderful stuff to be teaching four or five-year-olds. That's what they call really good bullshit. But uh, no, no, because by the time I think I'm right in saying Joseph being born, and especially the parents, they were they were born. So uh, Corsica was Geno- Genoese, so Italian at the time of birth. By the time Napoleon was born, it had gone to French. Um, but yeah, for Holmes's uh, logic, it was a period of it being Italian. And so far, that Italian wasn't the United States. But yeah, I was just going to bash Napoleon Bonaparte because I had an opportunity to do it and it's my favourite pastime. Outstanding. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had it any other way, Marcus. Right, let's go to let's go to Kate because we're going from one big hitting family to another who she has officially renamed, haven't you, Kate? I have, yeah. Um, and I apologise in advance if this goes on, but the fucking Tudors are assholes. <laughs> Charlie is screaming approval already. Right. I'm with you. I'm with you, Kate. Go for it. Tell him a new one. You might, Charlie, have to help me out if I, if huh? I get anything wrong because it's, or if I miss anything out because there's such a mountainous pile of shit. <laughs> this is true, but you know that Holmes hears the word Tudor. You got it. Immediately got it. passes out with boredom. So I, you have I to keep did, him awake. I did my best to trawl through the mountainous pile of shit that means they don't deserve to be famous and pick out the interesting stuff. So, um, I want to tell you about a very popular, awful, awful family. Not the Kardashians, as we've discussed, the Tudors. So during 118 years of rule, the English public was subjected to six monarchs, Tudor monarchs. A couple of them hardly count, while some are the most famous or infamous rulers ever. The Tudors were, by turn, usurpers, murderers, massacrists, philanderers, incestuous, illegitimate, sickly, cowardly paedophiles. A minor noble family from Wales, power-hungry Owen clawed his way up into the household of the English royal family. His relationship with Henry V's widow was the catapult which launched the Tudor dynasty, though the secretive nature of their early relationship throws up some questions about the legitimacy of their children, in particular Edmund, Henry VII's father. Henry VII was the last monarch to win his crown by the murder of its rightful wearer. He had no right to the throne, but once he got it, he executed anyone who might threaten his rule. 
He also married the niece of the aforementioned rightful wearer in a further attempt to secure his position. Despite the lack of romance, they did manage to have some children. Arthur, sickly weakling who didn't make it to adulthood. Margaret, an overachiever by Tudor standards, married James IV and became a steward, so she doesn't really count either. Her grandkids got married to each other, and her great-grandson was James VI and the first. But as I say, they weren't really Tudors. Henry VII's eldest surviving son was Henry VIII. Where do I even start? He was a paranoid, volatile, self-righteous tyrant. His marriage record was, at best, an object of ridicule. At worst, it made him look like a monster. After years of trying and failing to get his first marriage annulled, he invented his own religion and demanded the whole country follow it, executing anyone who disagreed. The historian John Stowe claimed Henry VIII had about 70,000 people executed, probably an exaggeration, but the numbers certainly reached well into the hundreds. On to Mary, the only child of Henry VIII. She uh, was the only child of Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine, she was forbidden from seeing her mother after the marriage was declared void. Henry quickly married the already pregnant Anne, and Mary was declared illegitimate. Mary refused to acknowledge Anne, her stepmother, as queen, or her half-sister Elizabeth, now heir presumptive, as a princess. It wasn't long, though, before Anne fell from favour and lost her head. Elizabeth, like Mary, was declared illegitimate. Henry's next wife, Jane Seymour, convinced Henry to make peace with Mary. He agreed with some conditions. Mary, his daughter, must recognise him as the head of the Church of England, acknowledge that her parents' marriage was unlawful and that she was illegitimate. He bullied her and forced her into signing a document agreeing to this. Jane Seymour then died giving birth to Henry's only son, Edward. So Henry agreed to marry Anne of Cleves. He saw her a week before their wedding and found her hideously unattractive, but he didn't say anything. Instead, he married her, then executed the person who'd arranged the match, and had the unconsummated marriage annulled. He married the young, attractive Catherine Howard. She had an affair, do you blame her? He chopped off her head. He married Catherine Parr, who mostly just nursed him, though she did help him reconcile with Mary and Elizabeth. He inherited a huge fortune, close to £400 million in today's money. Despite this and all the money he got from the dissolution of the monasteries, he was always on the verge of bankruptcy. Image was everything to Henry. His court was one of the most lavish in history, and his constant war efforts were eye-wateringly expensive and completely ineffectual. By the Third French War of his reign, he'd enjoyed the extravagance of court to the extent that he was too fat to lead his men on horseback. He had to be carried on a litter along the battle lines. He was just disgusting. He died a fat, unhappy man whose stubborn arrogance left confusion and disorganisation in his wake. His young son and successor, Edward VI's reign, was controlled by his advisers, and his death at 15 sparked a succession crisis. Edward VI and Mary were not close. She refused his demands to abandon Catholicism and he persistently refused to drop his demands. When she attended his court, he embarrassed her, publicly chastising her worship and reducing them both, both her and himself, to tears. So adamant was Edward that the Catholic Mary not become queen. He also disinherited his Protestant sister, Elizabeth, nominating his first cousin once removed as his successor, the great-granddaughter of Henry VII, Lady Jane Grey. She managed to hold nine days on the throne before she was deposed, locked in the Tower of London and later executed by Mary, Bloody Mary, who spent five years trying to revert the Reformation begun by her father. Mary had nearly 300 religious dissenters burned at the stake and didn't think about finding a husband or producing an heir until she was 37. 
She married Prince Philip of Spain. Having drawn up an act that banned him from acting without her consent and stating that England wouldn't support Spain in any war. That's a heck of a prenup, even by today's standards. The marriage prompted a rebellion, which she accused her sister Elizabeth of being part of, and she locked her up for a year. Five years later, Mary died childless. Her husband wrote to his sister that he felt a reasonable regret for her death. She passed the crown to her half-sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth I, the last monarch of the Tudor household, thank God. An indecisive, short-tempered ruler who enjoyed more than her fair share of luck. After the death of her father, Elizabeth went to live with her stepmother and her new husband, Thomas Seymour, who engaged in romps and horseplay with Elizabeth, who was still a child. He'd go into her bedroom in his nightgown, tickle her and slap her on her buttocks. Catherine Parr, her stepmother, rather than confronting him over his inappropriate activities, joined in, at least once holding Elizabeth while he cut her gown into a thousand pieces. Perhaps this is what prompted her obsession with purity, which resulted in her nickname, the Virgin Queen. On inheriting the crown, she immediately established the English Protestant Church, of which she made herself the supreme governor. She became this sort of idolised, glorified apotheosis of purity, through propaganda in art and literature. Shakespeare was her go-to guy when she wanted her enemies vilifying. She didn't deserve this reputation, the one of glory and idol, not the one of villainous. She, uh, at the start of her rule, 500 Englishmen rampaged through Ireland's villages, um, burning them to the ground and killing every man, woman and child that they saw. Each night they laid a trail of the victim's heads in a path that led to the commander's tent. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Elizabeth considered killing Catholic children an heroic thing to do. She praised Lord Grey for executing 600 Spanish soldiers who'd already surrendered in Ireland. Um, and they were also said to hang local women and tortured others. Um, so the Virgin Queen did have suitors. Her favourite, Robert Dudley, was accused of murdering his wife in the hope of securing Elizabeth's hand. Even that wasn't good enough for her, though she did have his bedchambers moved next to her own apartment. Shortly after which, she was mysteriously bedridden with an illness that caused her body to swell. In 1587, a man was arrested in Spain claiming to be the illegitimate son of Elizabeth and Robert Dudley. His age was consistent with uh, birth during the swelling illness. When Dudley eventually remarried, Elizabeth was hugely jealous, had fits of rage and treated his wife with hatred for the rest of her life. Elizabeth was friends with Ivan Terrible, who did propose once. Mostly she just annoyed him, apparently. Um, she half-heartedly supported a number of ineffective, poorly resourced military campaigns. And England's victory against the Spanish Armada associated her with one of the greatest military victories in history. Though given her track record, it was likely luck. Raleigh claimed that her caution had impeded the war against Spain, so she probably didn't have very much to do with the success. The following year, she sent nearly 25,000 men to Spain and they suffered catastrophic losses and defeat. And the advantage that they gained the previous year was lost. The latter part of her reign was marred by dragging conflicts, heavy tax burdens and a poor economy. She suffered criticism and increasingly relied on propaganda. She became haggard and could hardly be understood when she spoke. The more her looks faded, the more her courtiers praised her. Despite this, she eventually fell into a depression and melancholy and died. Despite having imprisoned and eventually executed her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, her relationship with James, Mary's son and her godson survived. And it was he that was proclaimed king after her death. Basically, 
the Tudors were assholes. They were stubborn, egotistical fanatics. Others were indecisive, weak-willed and weak-minded. They murdered and maimed and demanded and philandered. They changed their minds so often the people around them must have had whiplash. They warmongered without result and spent money without restraint. Yet still, they are revered. They have TV shows and books and everybody has heard of them. Much like the Kardashians, they are very famous for no good reason. The Tudors, surely a contender for the worst family ever? you may be right big round of applause you missed two things that would have made them sound like even bigger bastards one of those was the fact that henry the eighth was a 25 stone man that was nearly 50 and stank by the time he forced Catherine howard who was a child to marry him uh, i think she might just have been legal uh, yeah, I think and yeah, Jane Seymour, the whole of Europe widely regarded her death as totally avoidable and that it only happened because English doctors just didn't care enough to stop it. That, that's just fantastic. I mean, they, they reckon Catherine Howard may have been, she may have been 19, she may have been 17 when he killed her. Oh. She was, she was a child. She was a, a, she was a, she was a child. Yeah, I mean, my, my problem with the Tudors mainly is the fact that at the start they had zero claim whatsoever. Don't give me Jonicorn. This is, that's bullshit. It was Margaret Beaufort who made this happen and she was incredible. But by that rationale, Elizabeth of York would have been, um, King Edward's legitimate heir. So uh, technically for all his bastardness, that makes Henry VIII your legitimate heir. But it's just the, the constantness of them. You, then they, you're right. They're everywhere and everyone thinks they're brilliant and that we only yeah. ever had one king. No. We didn't. So, yeah, well done. Yeah. Oh, I hate them. Oh, the Judas, the Judas. Everybody knows about the Judas. It's like the fucking Kardashians. Oh, I can't stand it. It's awful. <laughs> Although, do you know what? I am watching The People versus O.J. Simpson, which has David Schwimmer as Robert Kardashian. Uh, and brilliantly, they keep shoehorning in the Kardashian kids at every possible point. And there was a brilliant one where he was sat with them in a, t- a tacky restaurant, explaining to them that uh, being famous for the sake of it without any heart and soul behind it and any reason was empty and pathetic, uh, which I think we had massive fun doing that. Uh, Clive, what do you think? I think of the, the Kardashians, the Tudors. Oh, the, the Tudors are a very, very ghastly bunch. They are worse than the Kardashians by a long chalk. The socioeconomic impact of the dissolution of the monasteries cannot be overemphasized. What it did was effectively take away the welfare system, the hospital system of the country, and replace it with absolutely nothing, and take all the money out and stuff it into the pockets of the king and his courtiers. It's a bit like Boris Johnson trying to sell off the National Health Service, let's face it. It it was a, a diabolical thing to do. I mean, the propaganda that the Tudors have enjoyed has been sickening. It's a bit like having the Telegraph and the Mail and the Express all writing glorious things about you when you're doing bad things. But the fact that Mary Tudor is referred to as Bloody Mary, when she killed far fewer people than her father or her sister, Mm. they come out of it as sweet and light and everything. They are... Truly, truly ghastly punch. Although the only question is, Kate, aren't they just being royals? Um, no, other royals haven't been nearly so hideously behaved. Is the duty of a royal not to, you know, look after his loyal subjects rather than murder them all? 
or lots of them. I think One it's would have thought best so. not to get Clive started on Royals. <laughs> we don't. But also the other thing is when you think about was it Burley and the kind of whole secret service that Elizabeth developed, which was primarily aimed at spying on English people and lining them up for execution and extending her absolute power. Nasty stuff. Mm, they were they were just vile. They were far far worse than any other royal family or monarch put together they were just they were either ineffective and useless and didn't really count or or they were murdering tyrants also as well cover your ears chris they were ginger you missed the number one <laughs> burn well oh, i just ginger last time so i thought i'd better oh, yeah. not this time <laughs> no, they, they didn't. on the tudors Holmes, what say you about the tudors I mean, I, I'm not keen on them anyway, to be honest. But I think, I mean, Henry VIII was undoubtedly an idiot. I've gone into that before, and really. So I don't have... But then if you look at Edward VI, I mean, he really didn't do anything. He was being controlled by advisors. Um, Mary, all right, she forced Catholicism on, on people. But I mean, I think 300 deaths when it comes to enforcing religion isn't that much in the general scheme of things. Uh, and apart from that, she was that, and the fact she lost Calais, she's quite dull, really. I've always found. Yeah, they're either dull and ineffectual, or, or horrendous, awful, awful, horrible people. I think Elizabeth is massively overrated. I think, yeah, way back to my A-level history, which is fucking years ago, to be honest. Um, she was basically in the arms of her advisors all the time. You know, it's almost anything she did was set up by William Cecil or his son Robert after he took over. I mean, they basically set up Mary, Queen of Scots execution. They they, they almost entrapped her into behaving in, in the way that led to her execution. It was just, I'm not sure Elizabeth had that much to her, to be honest, other than she was just, you know, put in this position and manipulated by various competing interests, to be honest. So, I think if you take Henry VIII out of it, who obviously was a bit of an arsehole, the rest of it, I think, is possibly a little unexceptional. I mean, you said something at the start that they were the worst royal family ever, but I mean, I, I would, I would guess that the Plantagenets would disagree strongly with that. I, Henry VII was quite an impressive king. If you like kings to be very strong and kind of powerful and mm. he left the fortune tyr tyrannical because he, he took yeah, over the country that had been in absolute mayhem for quite a few years beforehand and ruthlessly imposed his authority but it's the ruthlessness of it that's disgusting yeah the Yorkists who took the throne as well from Lancastrians mm. Oh, Charlie's smiling politely. But she doesn't they, like they had a, they had a better claim. Um, because theirs wasn't from an illegitimate line. But the problem was with, with Henry was that he was incapable of producing a male heir that lived. And all that time, all of the Plantagenets who were still alive, like Blessed Margaret Pole, were pumping out boys like generation after generation of strong, healthy, plantagenet boys. So Henry had to kill them. That was the only option that he had because otherwise people would rally around them because they had the better claim. And it was the same with Elizabeth and, and Mary, Queen of Scots. People were rallying around her as an alternative and she couldn't have that. So, you know, they did what they had to do. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay. Um, but I think we could, everyone in this room agrees that Henry VIII was a twat. <laughs> they, ought to put that, they ought to put that on a tea towel at Hampton Court. That needs to be the first bit of history hack merchandise. Henry VIII was a twat. Closely followed. And what, what about Cromwell too? Yeah, and the, the Zach quote about Hitler's baby juice. <laughs> uh, let's go on that note. Let's go to Beth. Why me? Why do? Why am I the natural go-to after? <laughs> um, I will just preface. I have. I've been sitting on this all evening that Alex said that I asked not to go first because I was busy writing this. That is incorrect. That is fake news. I was writing other stuff that I'm late for. You writing the article that is the last single article to come in for the next edition of Salient Points? Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've got that... You know what? It turns out it's not because there's someone else in this room that hasn't handed in their article I, I, points <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, Luna. <laughs> yeah, Lena in the corner. Right. Go on, Beth. Right, okay. So, um, family I've gone for. It's not a family in, in the traditional sense of the word. Um, but in this circumstance, I think I'm going to be allowed this one. I've chosen to go with as the worst family in history, the Genovese crime family, which is one of the five families that dominate organized crime activities in New York City and New Jersey as part of the American ma- mafia. The current family was founded by Charles Lucky Luciano and was known as the Luciano crime family originally from 1931 to 57, when it was then renamed after boss Vito Genovese. But the core start of the family occurred in the 1890s. They were originally in control of the waterfront of the west side of Manhattan and the Fulton fish market. And you know, I don't really need to go into much detail, really, as a mob family, a mafia family. They've been indicated in all sorts of crimes throughout the years, including racketeering, murder, illegal bookmaking, prostitution, pornography and assault, to name but a few. And um, potentially, you know, they had had a lull in the late the later 80s and 90s they are still the most organized and powerful mafia family in the united states unique in today's mafia as well if they've benefited greatly from members following the omerta which is a code of conduct emphasizing secrecy and non-cooperation with law enforcement and this has worked for the family as since the 1980s only eight members have turned ev- this evidence over to the federal state 
However, there's one period in time I want to focus on particularly, and that's from the 1930s to the 1950s. And coming back to this man, in one man in particular, Vito Genovese. He is a ruthless man, an ambitious man, and power hungry. And he leads this family through an intense period. Born in Naples in Italy, he came, he came to New York when he was aged 15. His family settled in Manhattan's Little Italy neighbourhood. By the time he was 19, he had his first conviction in a new country, a one-year stint behind bars for illegal gun possession, and had made fast friends with future mafia visionary Charles Luciano, lucky, at, at that time also a fellow aspiring wise guy. Um, Genovese was initially Luciano's most reliable and trusted enforcer and hitman. As they rose to the top, they killed their way to the top. No one is really sure how many they did exactly kill to get as far as they did. They worked initially for Little Italy's godfather, Giuseppe Massier, Mass, let's try again, Giuseppe Masseria. The pair grew to be his main lieutenants. In 1930, Masseria is alleged to have requested that Genovese murder Tom, Tommy Reina, an ally of Masseria, until he was con- suspected of conspiring with the arch-rival Salvatore Mazzarano. The following year, as the two, Masseria and Maranzano, squared off for underworld supremacy in a bloody conflict called the Castel Amares War, Genovese turned his back on his boss and was part of a hit team that assassinated Masseria in a Coney Island restaurant. Luciano and Genovese then quickly turned their attention to Maranzano, who thought they were on his side, but in fact, with his enemies. Eventually, with Mazzieri gone and Maranzano regrouping the Italian-American gangs with the support of people like Genovese and Luciano, he was seen to be even more greedy and hidebound than Masseria had been. They knew that he was a threat, and he knew, Mazzarano knew that they were a threat. He hired Vincent Mad Dog Cole as an Irish gangster to kill Luciano. Luciano sent Genovese and Costello, another associate of theirs, um, with a plan. They planned together to kill Maranzano. Eventually, they did this. They sent four Jewish gangsters to Maranzano's office. Um, They were disguised as government agents. Two of them disarmed Maranzano's bodyguards. And then the other two stabbed the, the man multiple times in the body and the head before shooting him. This assassination was first of one what would be later fabled as the Night of the Sicilian Vespers, where seven other mob bosses, all of whom were threats to Luciano and Genovese, were killed from mid-September to December 1931. Um, upon taking control of the area, Luciano firmed up his control carrying out more killings on a wide scale in order to assume his position. He then brought in Genovese as his underboss. It was at this point that Genovese's brutality came even more to the front. In 1931, just after the uh, this, all these killings had gone on and the power, play, the power struggle had, had settled, he decided very shortly after the wife, the death of his first wife, Donata Ragone, who died of tuberculosis, he very swiftly and 
oh my word, he quickly announced his intention to marry a young woman by the name of Anna Petillo. Anna, however, was already married to a young man named Gerard Vernotico. Well, as you can imagine, on March 16th, 1932, three months after this power struggle, Vernotico was found strangled to death on a Manhattan rooftop. And on March 28th, 12 days later, Genovese married his widow, Anna. Anna also happened to be Genovese's cousin via her mother as well. So he brutally murdered this young, this young woman's husband, married her 12 days later, potentially against her will, and was related to her. After that, he's obviously there are countless of occasions that he's killed people, um, committed really nasty offences against people. One in particular, 1934, he allegedly ordered the murder of another mobster, Ferdinand Boccia. Um, they had, the, the pair of them had conspired to cheat a wealthy gambler out of $150,000 in a high stakes card game. After the game, Boccia had rightfully demanded a share of which he wanted 35,000 because he had introduced the victim to Genovese. And because he didn't want to share and he didn't like sharing all the money and he wanted all the money for himself, Genovese just decided to have him murdered. And on September the 19th, 1934, Genovese and five associates shot and killed Boccia in a coffee shop in Brooklyn. While all this was going on, the, the feds had been trying to build a case and they did manage to build a case against Luciano. Um, Luciano went on trial in May 1936 for um charged with pandering which if that is the proper term for being a pimp um the trial began and he was accused of being part of a massive prostitution ring known as the combination so so large it's been given its own name he's exposed for lying on the witness stand um he also had no explanation for why his federal income tax records claimed he only made $22,000 a year when his lifestyle was very evident against this and eventually in June 1936 he was convicted on 62 charges of compulsory prostitution and was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in state prison meaning that Genovese after this time was now promoted to acting boss of the family um, he was only in the job for a year until he had to flee uh, the United States for Italy as he was on the verge of being indicted for the murder of Boccia but he still managed to keep a high profile in his mafia with his mafia background. He was dabbling in numerous black market rackets, forged ties with the Italian and Sicilian dons, and he kept his criminal empire back in New York, growing through the acting boss of Frank Costello, who I did mention earlier, an associate, their fix-it man, and he was also very political as well. He even, whilst he was in Italy, if you've noted the some of the years he's been there, he even aligned himself with well-known nice guy Benito Mussolini. Hmm. And according to um, FBI records, Genovese even gave the OK for an, a hit of an anti-Mussolini newspaper reporter, Carlo Tresca, in front of his newspaper office in Manhattan. But, you know, because it's war and we, you know, we don't have this, the best track records when it comes to people who are not the nicest of folks, shall we say, the U.S. military um, did take up his offer of help uh, when they arrived in Italy. Yeah. 
you know, when it uh, suits people, they're bad guys. When it suits them, they're great mates. He was eventually arrested by Italian authorities for a property, a stolen property ring, which involved a U.S. Army base. Um, he was then back in New York to face charges. He's extradited um, and then indicted um, for another assassination of a man uh, called, no, right, I'm, I'm getting too tired up with myself here. He was indicted in another case um, in 1945, but the case mysteriously fell apart when two of the key witnesses were slain on his orders. And he was released in the summer of 1946, rejoining Costello on the streets of New York, atop of the Luciano crime family. It's believed that a member of the family had turned against Genovese, which is the reason why he'd been arrested. That member of the family was executed for their betrayal in the 1960s when they were found again after 20 years. Not only had Genovese tried to maintain a profile, but conversely, Frank Costello, who had been in charge while he was in Italy, had undermined him and demoted him from underboss to capo regime, leaving Genovese again determined he would take back control of the family. Um, eventually, after being acquitted of the cases that we mentioned, he hired a man by the name of Vincent Chin Gigante, who shot Costello in the side of the head on a public street in broad daylight. Costello managed to survive this attack, though, and a month later, then Albert Anastasia, who was a powerful ally of Costello's in this power grab, was also murdered by gunmen sat in a barber's chair about to have a shave. Feeling very afraid and isolated after the shootings, Costello quietly retired and surrendered control of the family to Genovese. Um, in order to solidify his power play, um, Genovese called for a meeting of mafia dons at, at the Alapachin in New York, which was the estate of Pennsylvania crime boss Joseph Barbara. Um, however, this is where it starts to go very wrong for Genovese. The summit turned into an epic, epic disaster when local cops raided this conference of godfathers and more than 60 mobsters were nabbed. Oof, big error there. Eventually, what the Fed managed to indict Genovese for was narcotic trafficking. They managed to get him on drugs. He was convicted in 1959 and sentenced to 15 years in federal prison, and he wouldn't leave alive. He died of a heart attack on Valentine's Day in 1969 in a hospital. And part of the reason why he'd ended up in prison for as long as he did, and something else that happened in, while he was in prison, was a man called Joe Valecci, who had, was the son-in-law of someone that Genovese had had, had bumped off. He actually turned on Genovese and became a government witness. And he revealed the inner workings of all of the mafia families, effectively bringing down the curtain on organised crime's golden era of the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. And when Valetti spoke in front of the US Senate committee in 1963, um, he did reveal details that had been shrouded in myth and mystery for decades, crushing blows to the brand of organised crime that Genovese and his underworld contemporaries had worked so hard for. And despite this devastating blow to this family, Genovese being jailed, Luciano being jailed, it is still operating today. They are, they did manage to bring themselves back together in the 70s, 80s, 
and are still operating as a crime family. They are engaged in an array of criminal rackets, including schemes that have involved Wall Street and the Internet, um, finding new ways to make money in the 21st century that they haven't been able to do before. They know their old tactics don't work anymore. They've taken advantage of lax due diligence rules by banks during the housing bubble um, with waves and waves of mortgage frauds. The prosecutors say that loan shark victims, already people in a bad state, have been obtaining loans to pay off debts to their loan sharks from the mobs. So they are taking from, they are being forced to be slave to one or the other. The family have found new ways to use new technology to improve on illegal gambling with customers placing bets through offshore sites via the Internet. And while we all know what mafias are capable of, their crimes truly are awful to think about. We've got just some of a sample of what the Genovese's have done. Racketeering, murder, labour union infiltration, extortion, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, loan sharking, illegal bookmaking, truck hijacking, fraud, prostitution, pornography, bribery and assault. For the Genovese family, along with other mafia families, there are a multitude of crimes. And yes, they might not be what we would traditionally call a family, but almost 130 years of participating in criminal activity, causing havoc and destruction in their wake, should constitute this group as the worst family in history. In addition to this, not just with their crimes, we must also think about their victims. We've had lots of numbers mentioned today. But there can be no doubt that there are thousands upon thousands of victims of mafia families. And that is what makes these three, these families truly awful. There are people, people who are victims of drug use, people whose family members have been murdered, those who have been bribed, those who have been victims of pornography. They truly have ruined thousands and thousands of lives across the world for hundred, over a hundred years. And surely, on top of all of this, I should win or at the very least get danger points just for the fact that I've chosen to talk about a very dangerous family that is still in operation today. If you don't hear from me after this podcast has gone out, you know what's happened to me. <laughs> that was 100% worth it just to hear Beth using phrases like the feds and bumping <laughs> off um, and stuff like that. That was brilliant. Although there was an air of smuggery about uh, James not being the only Midlander struggling with Italian names tonight. Holmes, yeah. what do you make of this one? I guess we're being asked to consider everyone involved as a sort of large extended family. Yeah, that's the point behind the argument. Yeah, I know I focused on Genovese, but I literally could have gone on for hours and hours and hours about every single thing they ever did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a compelling argument and they did some terrible things. Um, I just think I couldn't be asked to get a job in the mafia because you'd never be, you'd never be able to relax, would you? You know, someone is going to turn against you, try and get you bumped off or grass you up to the fence. That's going to happen. It's inevitable. It happens to all of them eventually. Um, Clive? Yep. It's, I, the effect of the mafia, particularly in the States, is absolutely horrendous. It's like a cancer crawling through society and the economy. It's not just the people who are hurt. It's the whole corrupt nature of it. And it's absolutely foul. The only thing that 
makes me wonder, though, is there are a couple of things. Firstly, is if you get rid of one crime family, just take them out completely, there's a vacuum and another one steps in. And one thing that the Genovese family did by their dominance was for at least a number of years, internecting warfare was fairly low. They kept the peace because they dominated. I mean, it doesn't... <laughs> So they were going to be nasty. They loads of people out of money and get sold them drugs. Oh yeah, they were doing. And, <laughs> uh, uh, no, there were so, so so many things. I mean, one of the worst is protection rackets, which are really deeply unpleasant. Where they basically people trying to set up businesses get absolutely scammed by them for years and years, and if they don't cough up, they get beaten up. It's really just horrid, horrid stuff. Well done, Beth, uh, for taking a shot at organised crime uh, in Italian. I won't do mine next because it runs too close. So we will go to, oh, Kit or Charlie, Kit or Charlie. Let's do Charlie next. Okay. I was just thinking that, you know, the, the Godfather and films of that ilk have got so much to answer for because oh, I grew up watching those and you, you kind of think when you, you think about actual, the real effects of the mafia, you forget because you think of the glamour and the, yeah. They're so, not cool. They're not. They're, They're not, and I look forward to your pitch because I can, I can feel the, feel the similarities already. Um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. And for the benefit of the judges and our, our community here on Zoom, I have switched out my usual sound effects, singing skills, all of that stuff for genuine girly swattery. And just for the judges and for everybody, uh, the, Family tree that I will be working with today is a genuine family tree. So <laughs> I want to have a go at the Churchills. No, not Alex. Alex is the greatest, as we know, of the Churchills. So <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got some historical beef here. Um, I'm going to start off at the, at not the beginning, but where we might have our beginning um, with Winston Churchill, our prime minister of war years. I'm not going to have a go at him because I think that we are, we're still too close. We're still too close to him to have any objective view on him. Leave it to historians in a hundred years. They will tell you what's what we are still too involved. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill and he was diagnosed with syphilis a month after Winston's birth. He actually had a second son after Winston and called him John Strange Spencer Churchill, which I, I don't know if that tells you anything about his particular state. Now, Randolph was the Secretary of State Inja. This was when we pronounced it Inja. And he directed the Viceroy at the time to invade Burma in November um, 1885. Sorry, my thing just told me my connection was unstable. And he annexed Burma as a New Year present for Queen Victoria. What a lovely present to give her. He gave it to her on New Year's Day 1886 and the resulting guerrilla warfare lasted for years, about the whole of the 1880s. So thanks for that, Lord Randolph Churchill. His father was John Spencer Churchill, the seventh Duke of Marlborough. Remember that title. He was born in 1822. 
and he was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and he was also Lord Blandford. He was responsible for the Blandford Act. Now, the Blandford Act took very populous parishes and split them up for the purposes of voting. That in itself doesn't perhaps sound too bad, but when you meet his father, his father was George Spencer Churchill, the sixth Duke of Marlborough. This will start to make some sense. He was what's known as an ultra-Tory. So I know I'm going to win with Clive here when I, I say that he was not a good thing. He split with Wellington in opposition to Catholic emancipation. He did not want Catholics to have any rights at all. And a lot of the laws that Catholics were still living under at this point in the um, early 1800s um, were acts that had been put in place under Charles II in the 17th century. So these were very old acts. The um, Act of Uniformity, the Test Act, Catholics weren't allowed to hold any position of power. So he, in response to trying to stop Catholics having any more power, he tried to open up elections with the reform, opening up elections, giving more people access to the vote, that would be relied upon to keep Catholics down and to keep Catholic emancipation from happening. Because, of course, if you ask the people, the people are going to say, no, we don't want Catholics to have any rights. That was his logic. Interestingly, he married a Stuart. And, of course, as soon as I see a Stuart, I start thinking, oh, who's this? He married Lady Jane Stuart. She was actually his second wife. He had a first wife, our George Spencer Churchill, sixth Duke of Marlborough. He had a first wife who he married in a fake marriage by getting his brother to pretend to be a clergyman. He then knocked up his wife, wife with inverted commas. They had a daughter. He met someone else he liked better and he successfully argued that they weren't properly married. What a git. His father was another George Spencer Churchill, the fifth Duke of Marlborough. He was the first to use the name Spencer Churchill. Um, it was probably as a way of trying to get rid of some of his debts, trying to sort of get a bit of money by using both of those names. He served as both a Whig and a Tory MP and as a Lord of the Treasury under Pitt the Younger. He was a major book slut, actually, so I kind of like uh, the fifth Duke of Marlborough, and he blew through most of the family money on books and antiquities. Can't argue with that. His father was George Spencer, the fourth Duke of Marlborough. He lived between 1739 and 1817. So we're going, we keep going back here, going back generations. He served in the Coldstream Guards. He eventually became Lord Chamberlain and Lord Privy Seal. Very, very high positions. Um, he was an amateur astronomer and had a private observatory built at Blenheim. And he was red and green colorblind. These are information I found out about the fourth Duke and I actually have no beef with him. This guy sounds pretty cool. His father was Charles Spencer, the third Duke of Marlborough. We're now back at the beginning of the 18th century. He became Lord Privy Seal and Lord Steward of the Royal Household. He inherited his titles from his elder brother after he predeceased him and from his aunt. Now, this is where the Spencers and the Churchills start to come together. He wasn't actually permitted to even inherit Blenheim until the Dowager Duchess of Marlborough had died. Um, again, by all accounts, he was a pretty decent type. I don't know anything bad to say about him. Uh, he served in the Seven Years' War, leading a British expeditionary force. 
but he died the same year, mercifully, before he could spend all of the family money, because it sounds like he was a bit of a spender. That, you know, this kind of kind of goes with part of the course. Now, this is where things start to get really, really interesting and where my my historical beef comes in. So Charles Spencer's father was another Charles Spencer. He was the third Earl of Sunderland. Sunderland? I don't care about the Earl of Sunderland. This is not this is not something to get excited about. But his mother was Anne Churchill. She was a lady of the bedchamber to Queen Anne. And her parents were, drumroll please, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, and his wife, Sarah Jennings. This is where my beef comes in. I have problems with both of these people. So John Churchill, we know this name. We know the Duke of Marlborough. He's a soldier monarch. He's a big military hero. Um, a cockroach, if you will. John was appointed as a page to James Duke of York during the reign of Charles II. He was given his role on the back of his sister's role on her back underneath the Duke of York. Um, she had a place in the Duchess's household as a um, lady's maid, as a maiden waiting, not not one of the high up um, women in the household, but a position for, for younger women. Um, and yeah, she had a, a long standing affair with the Duke of York and her children were all known as Fitzjames. John Churchill himself began an affair with his cousin, Barbara Villiers, hence my beef. And she interceded on his behalf with James to get him into the army as an ensign. He wanted to soldier. This is all he wanted to do. He wanted to go off and and fight. So she got him in as an ensign and he quickly rose through the ranks. This was thanks to James Duke of York's influence because he was porking his sister and Barbara's money. At this time, the army was not a meritocracy. You don't earn your way through the ranks in the 17th century. You buy your way up through the ranks. You have to buy your own uniform. You have to, this is, you can't just move up. This doesn't happen. So Barbara gave him a lot of money to, um, to advance in the army. She actually gave him some money, which he invested in a pension, one of the first ever pensions. And there's this whole big joke about Charles II saying to John Churchill that he didn't mind him shagging his ex because you do this for your bread, um, which is very cruel. And there was as much of an age gap between her and him as there was between Charles and Barbara. But you know, you can't be an old woman and a younger man. People don't like that. That's my my beef. Now, around 1675, was in the household of um, of the Duchess of York and spending a lot of time with her daughter Anne, Princess Anne. You want to remember that for later. John Churchill's. I keep wanting to say Spencer. John Churchill's younger brother Charles at this time was at the Danish court and made very good friends with Prince George. Now, Prince George married Princess Anne in 1683. We're starting to get this circle of family and family by marriage, which would come to prominence under Queen Anne. John was promoted to Major General 
and made a peer by James II when he became king after the defeat of the Monmouth Rebellion. He was then promoted to lieutenant general in advance of a battle against William of Orange, who was coming over to invade, but he defected. And this is where I think he's particularly shitty. So in all of these things, thank you, James Duke of York. Thank you for all of my advantages and the advantages of my family. Thank you, King James, for promoting me and for all of these things. Um, troops over with him to betray James for William III. Now, it didn't quite work out brilliantly for him because William and Mary never trusted John Churchill as far as they could throw him, which was probably a very good thing. John went abroad to fight. And while he was abroad fighting, Sarah, who was by now his wife, kept their. Um, oh, sorry. Um, this is we've got to go back. So William, the Seth, William, the third made made John the Earl of Marlborough to say thank you for defecting and looking after him. He was ruthless. He was ungrateful. He was treacherous. You kind of got that so far from me. John intrigued with those who um, who argued that Anne's claim to the throne was actually better than her sister Mary's, despite her being too for conspiring with the Jacobites to bring James back. So this is how how much you can trust John Churchill. William and Mary seem to agree that he was he was no good, though William did reconcile with him after Mary died, though sending him out and having him fight was always a good thing. So I'm not going to go into his whole military career because it's actually really confusing. But he goes away to fight. And while he's away fighting in the war of Spanish succession, this is where Jane, uh, where Sarah really comes into her own. She keeps the Marlborough course alive at Queen Anne's court. It's now now Queen Anne. And she wrote him the whole time she was away because she'd been friends with Anne since childhood. And I think it would be fair to say they were close. Um, we all know that they had had an affair and had a, a longstanding relationship. When Anne became queen, she offered to raise John to a dukedom. But Sarah said, you know, we can't afford this because to be a duke actually costs you quite a lot of money. So what Anne did was she said, well, I tell you what, we'll give you a pension of £5,000 a year from Parliament. And we'll also give you £2,000 a year from the Royal Privy Purse. And she gave Sarah all of the highest offices, not only that were available to a woman, but that were available in the royal household. And Sarah Jennings became keeper of the privy purse, which is a huge position in the royal household. She pushed the interests of Whig politicians and manipulated Anne quite. And this is my beef with the Churchills. They have been shameless and grabbing. But it wasn't their fault. I blame the father. So John Churchill's father was Sir Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill was a man of war. He fought for the king. He was a captain of the king's horse in the Civil War and forced to pay vast fees after after the, the royalist cause was lost, like many royalists did. But after the restoration, he saw that the way in and the way to make his family prosper was to put all of his children in positions with the Duke of York. So his daughter went into the Duke's bed. 
His son went into the Duke's household. His other sons went into the Duke's army and the Duke's service. So he was a very calculating man and family um, because they used the Stuarts and they rinsed them out. And they took them for all the grift they could. And except for Alex Churchill, they were all shitty. <laughs> oh, if anyone has seen the favourite, it's Rachel Vice, isn't it, that you've got beef with? Yes, yes. Actually, yeah. That's probably I mean, a famous portrayal of them. They, that was I loved I loved that portrayal, and I think the the sort of paranoia and the the these affairs I think was was really well done. I I know that I I am a pot calling the kettle black when I say about people shagging their way to get what they want and that kind of thing. But where they made a mistake is that they fucked over Barbara Villiers. And you don't do that on my watch and get away with it. Yeah, I will take your say. whole family down for generations. Yeah, you are, uh, of course, referring to Barbara sleeping her way to the top and not you, just in case there was <laughs> Oh, shit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holmes, what do you think of this? <laughs> Uh, uh, they don't seem to be as a, a bunch of wrong ends as some of the others we've heard tonight, to be honest. I mean, um, look, we've had a toddler getting killed. I can't beat that. Come on. You know, I, I mean, the first one, Rand, Randolph, I mean, if he hadn't given Burma to the Queen, someone else would have done. It was that time, you know, that type of thing. Um, you like some of the others. I mean, you then mentioned that, you know, some couldn't afford to be in the army, but that was the way people had to pay to get into the army, even, you know, the late 19th yeah. You know, so that was, that wasn't sort of Machiavellian. That was just the way things got on, really. Um, and then you didn't touch the obvious, Churchill. Which one? Winston. <laughs> I, I, like I say, I still think we are too close to that. We are, we can't be objective about him as much as we want to be. And I don't know if we'll ever be because yeah, we still have strong feelings about Cromwell, and that's 400 years ago. The sort of behavioural issues, the, the way that they behave that you've highlighted, is that particularly unusual for a family at the time? It's No, it's not unusual at all. I could have picked any aristocratic family. They they all did this. This is not, not unusual behaviour. I just have beef with them and think they're shitty. It's just sort of like a bit like therapy for you and Marcus tonight, really, isn't it? I mean, one of the ways that I'm looking yeah. at it is, is, would I like this this family to move in next door to me? And if I had to pick basically between the Benders and the Churchills, the Churchills would win any day of the week at the moment. <laughs> Three of them are okay, so doesn't mean that it doesn't seem as though this is a deeply corrupt family, although they were clearly deeply corrupt because they were part of the establishment and the aristocracy and they were very much part of setting up Britain as an imperialistic power and doing terrible things to people all around the globe. But there were lots of other families who were part of that elite who also exploited people, not just in foreign climes, but in Britain as well. So they're all a bunch of bastards, but I think no more bastards than other people, but well-vented. You got that off your chest. Thank well you. done for that. Do you think, Clive, we could argue that we could blame all of those sins of all of those families who are exactly the same on this one family and I could win? 
No. Oh, that, now, you should have put that argument from the beginning. These are the people. I think you'd have had to show. <laughs> they invented the Tory party, guys. They invented yeah, Toryism. The Whigs, the Whigs were just as bad. As we know the Tories now. The Tories as they were then, they're not, they're not a thing. My family splits off from this lot 10 years before the first Duke of Marlborough's. My conscience is clear. We were their servant. <laughs> Phew. Yeah. I've, I've gone back further if you that want, was... Alex. Have I got any of yours? Uh, if you've gone yeah, back have I got any? 1990, uh, yeah, it's my family. Sir John? Yeah, that, that's the one. 1585, Sir John? Yeah. Oh, he's a lawyer, Clive. We like him. <laughs> Yeah, these are probably, yeah, these are your uh, people, Alex. Sorry, but... Charlotte, I have to say that I spent a lot of my life in the company of lawyers, and I don't necessarily like lawyers. <laughs> to be fair, Clive can remember, Clive has met lawyers from 1575 as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, Clive's okay. far too young and handsome to have met any lawyers from that long ago. Oh, nice comeback. 1627? Yeah, that will that will do it. Uh, Kit, go on. You go next. All right. A bit um, more distance between me and Beth. There, there is a little little bit of distance in time as well with this one because this one's going out to Alina. This is proper ancient history. I have gone for the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt, um, and Ptolemy uh, was born in three sixty seven BC in Macedonia. Uh, there was rumours that he was Philip II's bastard. But that would have made him Alexander the Great's half-brother. It's never really mentioned. Regardless of whether that's true, he was one of Alexander's seven bodyguards and generals. And we all know all kinds of shit went down with Alexander the Great. When Alexander died, the empire he carved out quickly fell to pieces. Ptolemy stole Alexander's body. Bit weird. And to this day, we have absolutely no idea what he did with it. What we do know is that he moved to Egypt, where he founded his own dynasty there. He began to sponsor culture and learning. He founded the Great Library of Alexandria. So far, so good. But rather than keep up with Greek traditions, Ptolemy embraced Egyptian ones. And this is where we get unstuck. Because the Ptolemies decided that, like the pharaohs of old, they were gods. Initially, this wasn't too bad. The Ptolemaic dynasty was more interested in shoring itself up against the other Alexander successor states. And they started a string of alliances and marriages to keep the population happy. But this soon started getting a bit kooky. Um, there is a naming convention that makes things very difficult. Um, the Ptolemies had this thing. All the men were called Ptolemy. And all the women were called either Berenice, Arsinoe, or a final name that I'll come to. That's how you get a situation where Ptolemy's eldest son, Ptolemy, was displaced by his younger brother, Ptolemy, murdered his nephew, Ptolemy. Then Ptolemy fled to the kingdom of Macedonia, where he helped Seleucus overthrow the king there before murdering Seleucus and ruling it on his own for 17 months. Um, it is very difficult to follow who's who. In fact, it's entirely possible that several of the rulers of the Ptolemaic dynasty didn't even exist. We're just confusing them with the other Ptolemies um, <laughs> because they didn't even number themselves. But let's just stick with the main line, shall we? Uh, this is where you get winners such as Arsinoe II, who became infatuated with her brother and so exiled his wife, also called Arsinoe, and married him in her, in, his, in her stead. After Arsinoe II died, her husband slash brother was so in love, he started a cult of worshipping her as the re reincarnation of the goddess Aphrodite. 
And this was the start of 250 years of incest. It became usual for the Ptolemies to marry their sisters to honour the Egyptian gods they pretended they worshipped and pretended they were, ruling together as co-regents. When this wasn't possible, they only went a little bit further in the family tree. Ptolemy IX, for example, murdered his mother and then married his niece, Berenice III. Only for Ptolemy X, his son from an earlier marriage, to murder his dad and shack up with Berenice III himself, who was at that point his wife, his stepmother, his cousin and his half-sister. Unfortunately, Ptolemy X then got bored of his wife, stepmother, cousin and half-sister Berenice III and had her killed. His rule ended 19 days later because it turns out she was really popular and the citizens of Alexandria lynched him. This is just a few of the highlights of 10 generations of incest, murder and infighting and scheming. It's less of a family tree and more of a family hanging vine. And let's not pretend they really gave a crap about Egypt either. Only one person in the entire 300 year dynasty even bothered to learn Egyptian. During this time, a series of wars bled Egypt dry to the point that it stood no chance and had to ally with the upcoming power of the Roman Empire. And here's where we get to the name that I missed out, because the most common name for a Ptolemaic girl was Cleopatra. That's right. The famous beauty of the ancient world, Cleopatra VII, by our numbering system, was the product of incestuous selective breeding. In 51 BC, she lost her husband slash brother, Ptolemy XIII. But that wasn't a problem because she quickly married her other brother, Ptolemy XIV, who was at the time 12 years old. She was also shagging Julius Caesar and became preggers with Julius's child. And when old Julius kicked the bucket in Rome six years later, Cleo needed to secure her kingdom. So she murdered her brother slash husband and replaced him with her son by Julius, Ptolemy XV. So for those keepings to a score, Cleopatra slept with two brothers, one of whom was 12, while committing adultery with the country's biggest enemy and then had her brother slash husband murdered to put a love child on the throne. Eventually, of course, she gets dragged into the Roman civil wars as the paramount Mark Antony, um, who, just to prove his love for Cleopatra, even murders her half-sister at her request. And in 30 BC, Octavian invades Egypt. Antony kills himself, Cleopatra kills herself, Octavian kills Ptolemy, Ptolemy the 15th. And thus ends the oldest empire in the world. But for my money, it really ended 300 years earlier, thanks to a bunch of incestuous, backstabbing Macedonians with a name fetish claiming to be gods. Well done. God, what a bunch of tossers. I didn't realise they were that bad. I knew they were inept. Uh, Alina is applauding you. Uh, Holmes? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the obvious issue here is the incest. When I looked at this earlier, I think there were, there were 15 marriages across the generations and 12 were between brother and sister and two were between uncle and niece. So that leaves one, one non-dodgy one for a bit of things. But... If if you could put that aside, if it's possible to say that, they were, um, I think you were slightly harsh on them in that they did take Alexander's body, but they put it in a temple in Alexandria. Uh, no, in Memphis. It's, okay. it's believed to have been in Memphis. And then they carried on with his, they carried on developing his library. They uh, were responsible for the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They did lots of things from a cultural perspective. Um, I think they were slightly incompetent rulers as well as apparently they were sort of only kept in power especially in the latter part of their their reign through through Rome through support from Rome but 
as I say, if you taking the in test out, they were just sort of a bit incompetent and, and, and quite middling, weren't they? Well, yeah. If you if you really have to ignore all of the incest and the and the uh, the backstabbing and the, and the murder and the self scheming, I mean, these these guys were sort of Machiavellian before Machiavelli. Um, they did do a lot of things culturally. I can't deny that they were patrons of science um, and learning and um, and certainly Hellenization of um, of, of Egypt and uh, and what essentially establishes uh, Greek. Uh, principles as key learning in the east of the Mediterranean, which continues on actually through the Roman Empire, the Romans by the Greeks, and then obviously you get to the, to the, the Byzantines as well. Um, but I can't get past the incest. True. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I've not sat here on a Thursday night ever before defending incest, to be honest. But I think scheming <laughs> and, and the murdering I, that was just how what happened at the time with these type of people. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the the Greek successor states, um, when you look at what happened with the Seleucid Empire, when you look at what happens with all of the other generals, there isn't any level of incest in there at all, as far as I'm aware. Um, that was very much unique to them, and that was because they took on this mantle of the Egyptian way, ways and the Egyptian gods, and essentially impersonating the Egyptian gods rather than continuing with their Greek traditions. I mean, I did say if we could put the incest to one side, apparently they did it because they thought it. They thought it would lead to stability. There we go. <laughs> well, g- genetic it stability. It would also lead uh, six fingers on each hand, though. Well, I suppose, you know, you don't have to ask for the... It's easier to ask for the fathers when you have to ask for the hand in marriage. Probably makes buying Christmas... It probably makes Christmases a bit easier, that type of thing. <laughs> One thing about the naming convention, I, you know, you, whatever you say, how awful they are, the naming convention is brilliant. Just think of all those kids at school who are trying to learn the names of kings and queens and stuff like that. Simple. Ptolemy Cleopatra. Ptolemy Cleopatra. <laughs> and who are they married to? Ptolemy Cleopatra. It's a bit like George Foreman calling all his kids George, all eight of them. Brilliant I, idea. I, I, I think when, I used to, when I used to, do, I used to have to do, do history at school and stuff, it's really, if you get Kings or queens who have got a name and there's more than three of them, it gets really hard. Once you get above five, five's all right because it looks like a V, but mm. the rest of it, you, is it eight, seven? I don't know. You lose track. Well, no, we, we, so we, we, we had the benefit in the old Roman numerals where I came from. We understood them. <laughs> it's because you know, all, all... still using them because it was the Roman era, Clive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, on the basis that all monarchs are a little bit batty and these poor poor sods were the product of generations of incest. Were they really any worse than any other set of monarchs? I, I will say that the family tree is very easy to memorise. Um, again, because of the names being the same and because it goes in a straight line. I mean, it's really easy to do. <laughs> Just, um, did, did the incest start with this particular branch of the family? or was it? Was it yeah, yeah, it did. Um, so, as I mentioned, um, Ptolemy um, himself was probably, was potentially the half-brother of Alexander. Um, and as far as we know, um, again, it's a little bit cloudy from, from where he comes from. Um, that's not a Macedonian thing at all. It, it was adopted and it wasn't adopted actually initially for, I think it's the first 60 or 70 years. It's only when you get to Arsene II um, and her checking up with her brother that you really start kicking off the incest. But also the, the last one, Cleopatra, she goes and shags outside the, outside the tot. And get has a child by Julius Caesar, thus Please. increasing the gene pool massively. <laughs> but all to no avail. 
Cleopatra coming at you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those interesting things about Cleopatra in that there is this certain mystique and allure about her. We see these, you know, we, when you say Cleopatra, a lot of people probably think of Liz Taylor in the sort of the, the Hollywood glamour. Whereas in fact, she was just this kind of, I'm not going to slut shame. That's, that's not what I'm going to do, but she did shack up with two of her brothers and that's not right. In <laughs> fairness to the Ptolemies. Okay. So arguing for incest from over here, they didn't know about inbreeding and stuff. And the idea of, well, who's, who's of a social standing that's good enough to marry me? Well, so. Um, that was kind the, of, that but seems I, that that might have been the logic. Is there any time in human history where it's been okay to look at your sister and go, oh, I don't think. Well, they were childhood sweethearts, that I have to admit. Although <laughs> <laughs> incest only became a crime, crime in this country relatively recently. Incest is a, one of the two taboos that transcends just about every human society. What's the other one? I think it's mur- murder. Oh, okay. Gordon's gin. <laughs> Alcohol-free Gordon's gin. Oh, what the... Supporting oh, Tottenham. Oh. I'm going to pause the recording to tell you what my friend Charlie says about alcohol-free spirits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a reason I pause that recording. Uh, DM me if you want to know the joke. Cause it's <laughs> right, okay. Last one for tonight is mine. Um... We've heard a lot of stories tonight about families of old, ancient, medieval, renaissance. Do you know why this mob is even worse? Because this is living memory. This is not some long forgotten bloody age where life was cheap and people drank mead and relied on the local monks for a spot of medical care and romped with wenches and carried a sword with a good fucking reason. This was London 50 years ago. And this family are a prime example of a whole pile of families who might deserve tonight's crown. Let's start with Grandad. Mad Jimmy Cray, a fighter and a drunk who scrapped for fun and didn't give a fig for the consequences. He got so drunk on one occasion that he tried to kill his own family in their beds. He might have done the world a favour. Dad Charlie was a gambler and a deserter, perennially absent, mainly because he spent 12 years on the trot, avoiding the authorities after he refused to take part in the Second World War. He just used to climb over the wall, have his dinner and bugger off again. On the 17th of October 1934, Mum Violet had spawned two shitbags at the Cray family home in Hoxton. Even as kids, they were little bastards. If there was nobody to fight, they fought each other savagely. They were vicious from the off. Their dad was afraid of them by the time they were in their mid-teens. They were on probation at 12 for firing an air rifle from a train, the Scamps. They didn't just fight with their fists. It was coshes, chains and broken bottles. No razor for Ronnie. He realised earlier on that you could do worse with a big knife pointed at someone's face. They refused point blank to do their national service and made a complete menace of themselves until the army just gave up. They did give them nine months inside for that, though. And when they got out, the twins were already decided on a life of crime. What other career path was open to them than that of a cockney villain, say the books lauding their activity? I say balls. The concept of getting a job never occurred to them, it seems. It was easier to scare money out of people that actually earned it. 
They destroyed businesses that would not play ball or just took them. A fish shop owner once tried not to pay. They put his cat in the fryer. That was when I was done with them. They were, said one old school villain, a thoroughly evil pair of bastards. They did lock Ronnie up. And yes, the authorities deserve some of the blame for releasing a psychopath back out into society. One who thought he was Al Capone, who read Mein Kampf for inspiration, who wanted to get into diamond smuggling and even entertain the thought of assassinating various African leaders at one point for cash. And he had a weird obsession with Gordon of Khartoum, who I think we're pretty sure now was just an idiot who got everyone killed but nonetheless Ronnie adored saying Gordon was a real man he did what he had to do and he was bent like me when I go I hope I face it just like Gordon did hmm by taking a load of poor suckers down with you we could level a lot of accusations at the twins because there are many but Ronnie himself would have claimed the credit for every act of violence going given half the chance so we'll stick to documented facts we go from protection rackets to business to business fraud currency deals drugs and even people trafficking as the 1960s progresses we go from bicycle chains to cutlasses cavalry sabers gurkha knives bayonets they go out fighting just for fun Reggie had what he called his cigarette punch you offered someone a cigarette and as they leant in to have it lit, you could land one thump that broke their jaw. Genius. Firearms. Ronnie was obsessed with them. Lugers, Mausers, sawn-off shotguns. He had a penchant for dum-dum bullets and actually enjoyed pulling the trigger. He had a list of everyone who had taken a liberty and he wanted everyone on the list dead. My mate Sex Pest at football once got caught lifting a crate of orange juice that he was supposed to be delivering to one of their clubs. Luckily, he got away with being shouted at out the window by Ronnie. On another day, he might have had his face taken off. Surely they can't get away with this. Well, yes, actually, they can, because any poor schmuck that wanders into their path of their criminal activity will be intimidated, threatened, and if necessary, disappeared. You want legacy? They actually had to change the law because of the craze. Until the craze, one dissenting juror could turn a case. It had to be unanimous. It was too easy for them to get to one single juror. So after the craze got at the law, they changed it so that a simple majority was needed to convict and a a retrial wouldn't be forced. There are the underage boys. One shudders to think about the level of coercion and exploitation a kid suffered if he was on Ronnie's radar. The firm treated their women like dirt. One of their associates got fed up with his bird and chucked her out of the window. Another threw his out of a moving car and broke her back. But let's stick to the family. Reggie married Frances Shea in 1965. She was 21. She'd wanted to dump him, but soon found out that getting away from the craze was not a viable option when they wanted to marry you, and also that nobody else would have ever touched Reggie's ex-girlfriend. But they were always nice to their mum. Yes, their mum, who I think pisses me off more than anyone else in this sorry mess. Violet Cray was a fountain of perennial bullshit when it came to her boys. For a start, they were singled out, apparently. Twins always stand out. Being twins, they're naturally conspicuous. Other kids pick on them. And they they always seem to be older kids ready to lead the twins into trouble. So it was their fault, not the twins. But Violet, didn't you worry about all this activity? I used to worry about the twins, of course. I wasn't their mother for nothing. But if they was involved in any trouble, I didn't want to know. It only upset me. And as I knew both of them were good boys at art, 
I knew the things that people said about them couldn't be true anyhow. So, Violet, you're truly oblivious, aren't you? No, no, utterly delusional. I used to hear things about my Ronnie, but I learned by now never to trust what other people say. I knew him, others didn't. He was so kind to me, you see. Always made such a fuss of me. And that's more than most mothers round here can say of their boys. But Violet, do you know what most mothers in the East End can say? My child is not a homicidal fucking maniac. Also as well, the mother of all those boys getting done up the bum by your Ronnie against their will might have something to say that wasn't too nice as well. Anyway, surely she would have undoubtedly claimed that they only hurt other villains. Nope. Tell it to Francis's wife, Reggie, who took an overdose and killed herself at the age of 23. Her father said, all I could think was how those bastards had destroyed my daughter. Not in Reggie's mind, because if you're a Cray, nothing is ever your fault. He developed a pathological hatred of his wife's family instead and threatened to kill them all. This was after he drunk three bottles of gin and it was fucking Gordon's. Tell it to Frank Mitchell. Teddy Smith and a kid named Frost who were still officially listed as missing. Rumour has it the craze had undertakers on their payroll who would cremate an extra body or stash it in a coffin already scheduled to go in the ground. Either way, people vanish without a trace. Tell it to Harvey. He was 16, as were they at the time, and worked as a clerk. Good looking boy until his face was beaten in with a bicycle chain. Tell it to the owner of the Starlight Club in Highbury. Reggie turned up one night demanding a thousand pound. That's about 30 grand now. And when he didn't have it on the spot, Reggie shot him in the leg and had the firm smash his face in. Tell it to Joe, who ended up sitting in a public toilet with half his face on the floor next to him. Tell it to Jonathan, who had both cheeks branded by Ronnie. His friend called him tram lines afterwards. Tell it to Jack McVitie, a shitbag himself, but who nonetheless had a knife shoved in his eye by Reggie and then was repeatedly stabbed before being impaled through the throat at a house party. The firm stashed his body in a room with sleeping children in it while they mocked up the evidence. His body was apparently hacked to pieces and burned. Tell it to George Connell, who was sitting in a pub when he got a bullet in the face from Ronnie because he heard a rumour that he'd called him a fat puff. If he said it, I point out that neither of these facts is in dispute. When Cornell's widow came and smashed their windows, Violet was upset. Poor Violet. The book I took all of this from was called The Profession of Violence. When they made it into a film, and this is what really fucks me off about the craze and everybody with a craze complex, they called it legend. The idea that there is something fashionable or cool about the craze is offensive a paranoid schizophrenic hell-bent on killing people for fun and a twin who drove his young wife to suicide. Oh, but they gave money to charity. Sod that. There's a lot of lore about them. Apparently, they were weirdly telepathic. They peed at the same time and knew what the other was thinking. I don't think it was hard. There's not a lot rattling round in those skulls other than screwing people over and fighting. What a family. I salute their sister-in-law, Dolly, who hated them and never tried to hide it. And I salute Nipper Reed, the copper that nailed the bastards in the end. For more than a decade, they ran right until April 1969, when police raided 24 separate addresses at dawn. Nipper himself himself went in for the twins. It was a brave show at the time. They only had enough to put them away for a maximum of about five years, unless they managed to intimidate their way out of the clutches of the law again and get nothing. It was the longest, most expensive trial in British history. 
I salute the terrified barmaid from the blind beggar who swung the whole thing by telling the courtroom that Ronnie walked in there and shot John Cornell in the head in front of her. I do not salute these idiots or the cult of celebrity that has made them shiny and appealing. They weren't legends. They were filth. The whole sorry lot of them. Alina, you're from East London. You got any time for the craze? No. They're all a bunch of fucking lunatics. Actually, funnily enough, um, on my road back in Hackers... Um, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember which one of the fucking twins. I always get confused. And um, their girlfriend used to live on my square. It was really weird. That was like the legacy of where we used to live in Hackney. They're, they're horrible. They're horrible because they actually roped in young kids to work for them. And I knew one of them. And, um, he told me that if only we knew where all the bodies were buried in East London. Apparently they're all in other coffins. That's what they did. Well, they did pay, there's evidence as well that they paid um, that funeral director for extra cremations. So they would just like stick the ashes in with others or they would stick a body in a coffin that was about to be closed up with someone in it already. But yeah, there's a whole list of people that have never been seen or heard of since. Apparently the A12 is supposed to be interesting, but I don't know if that's true. Oh, what, in the concrete? Yeah. Especially in the bow flyover. Yeah. Yeah, but we'll never know the truth. So, no, I'm just glad they. I'm glad they squandered the money. I'm glad they didn't get to enjoy any kind of life after prison. One of them was still in prison, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, but to be fair, the lifestyle they lived, they were never going to live very long anyway. But did Reggie even get out? And if he did, wasn't he out for like a year or something? And then he died. I think he died of cancer, didn't he? Or something? he had cancer, and they were going to let him out on compassionate grounds. Um, but he, I think he died in prison. That would have been about 2000. And I say as a teenager who got weirdly obsessed. And now that I'm a grown up. I can't tell you how many times Barbara Windsor's fucking name came up in that book either. (laughs) Do you want to know something about Barbara Windsor? She went to my secondary school. Oh, that's something to be proud of. Well, I thought you were going to treat us to something massively defamatory there, and I'm slightly disappointed. Yeah. No. <laughs> I didn't know Elena was that old. Went to school, personally. <laughs> uh, but, no, I hate them. And do you know what? Actually, it's been a really depressing experience. That's been my Kindle book going to bed every night this week, and I'm so glad it's over. It is It is weird. It's, like you said, I mean, I was thinking when you were speaking, it is weird that, like, a bit like Jack the Ripper, which is example. There are some, you know heinous criminal acts that have almost become part of our culture, but in a but not in a negative way, in a sort of Yeah. Way. Well it's I like remember. the whole Peaky Blinders thing as well. It's exactly the same with the racetracks and the extortion and the they're exactly the same. I'm like I'm having to watch that for something else at the moment because I've got to do a fucking breakdown of Tommy Shelby's war service. And um, which, by the way, apparently he's at Verdun and saves thousands of lives at Mons. But then he's in the Warwickshire Yeomanry who are tunnelers. So pick the bones out of that. To be be fair, they do get the tunnelling companies at Labassal, right? Well, shame shame they then put him at Verdun along with Churchill, who claims to have been. There's a slightly odd odd reference to a place called Blackwood in the Somme that I'd never heard of either. But anyway, Um, I I really like Peaky Blinders. But it's it's weird, though, because... This cult of celebrity, I went to Eat once and I got picked up by a taxi driver from Eat who was taking me from Lille to Eat. And he was like, he was just, when he found out we were from London, he was saying, oh, I go to London all the time, I've just come back. And uh, he was saying he's obsessed with the craze to the point he knows 
Charlie Cray. And we were, there's like about 10 of us in cabs and we were about to start laughing. And then he said, uh, and uh, now I'm a close personal friend of Frankie Fraser. And then at that point we were like, yeah, all right, we'll just stay silent on this. We'll just wait till we get to the hotel and then we'll talk about it. But it's, yeah. it's odd that it travels, you know. That's it's ridiculous. But, I just like we had that whole fucking cry if you go to Chelsea. We nicknamed them Peaky Wankers for about three years after that program started. They were all turning up oh. in three quarter length coat and flat caps with the shaved sides on their head, looking like morons. And it's just like, what is so appealing about the idea of beating and robbing innocent people and taking all their money off them? It's but, not cool. The whole the whole thing is a lot of celebrity hype as well. I mean, the craze had that photograph that really set them off in the public ima- imagination. They weren't even the nastiest gang around in London at that time. The Richardsons in South London were far, far worse than the craze. Um, and you mentioned Mad Frankie Fraser. Mad Frankie Fraser was a nothing who just managed to make a lot of publicity. Mm-hmm. He was a very lowly little crook and thug. He wasn't a kind of great gang leader or anything like that it's just pure bullshit publicity and propaganda that's what makes me more angry about the craze i think the two things that made me angriest reading this is the cult of celebrity around them and the idea that the film would be i will never watch that film just on principle because they called it legend i mean that's got him smacking his wife about that girl was ruined within about eight weeks of marrying him three times that was the third attempt when she finally took her own life he absolutely destroyed her. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's fucking awful. That and the mother. That I mean, what Clive was reading are actual quotes from Violet Cray. Well, I guess in some ways the 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 eighties is it eighties or late eighties, early nineties with the with the uh, Kemp twins probably glamorised it even more, having seen both. Well, it was already glamorised by then. Was it Bailey who took that? Well, that's um, the thing as well. Yeah, that's the thing that really did it. That really. raked in three million pounds because, and they got the cut from that. So they were made for life for what they'd done for when they came out of prison based on people paying for their story. That, that's what sets them apart from other families like this is the obsession with being famous and the lengths they went to and the way that they got paid for what they did and who they hurt. Um, they were, they'd actually made a mint out of it by the end. Pity they didn't People are prepared to pay for it. Yeah. This, this episode is not going to be very popular amongst the uh, Belgian taxi driving community. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go into hiding with Beth now. But that's it's the same. Not thing. that I'd ever set foot in East London anyway, but yeah. You know, you're you're doing the same thing. You know, you and and Beth with these these crime families. The reality of them is horrific. It's absolutely horrific. But we see the Godfather. And the craze movies and all of that sort of stuff. So we see this kind of, the craze were almost like made out to be like highwaymen, like sort of gentlemen robbers. Like Robin Hood. Yeah, but they, they clearly weren't. But that's the, the image that they're given. They say, oh, a woman could walk down the street on her own in East London because no one would attack her because the craze were in charge. Thinking, oh, yeah, don't really buy it. But. <laughs> It's the fact that Violet was upset when that widow smashed her windows. Bless. Okay, 
right while the judges figure that out we'll go around the room and find out uh, a couple of people have left us uh chris has been off and had a nap and come back again well, he's <laughs> either been off for a nap or something else after Alina did that cleavage thing but his camera went off for quite a while which is very disturbing <laughs> to the rest of us uh we're gonna go around the room and see whose family you would have gone for uh if you couldn't have the one that you argued uh charlie oh alex you you win yeah the craze totally. I spent my 18th birthday back in what? 2000, 2000 2010. Where I, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> wearing, wearing a t-shirt I'd made myself out of a Sharpie, which said free Reggie Cray. And I, I renounced that. I'm now grown up. Yeah. <laughs> they were a bastard family. So yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with the church. It was just based on, oh. on the skanking they did. Uh, <laughs> John and Sarah were assholes. Um, and for the fact that why didn't my family get any of that money? Why were we the poor relatives? Why aren't you at Blenheim? Come on. Oh, do you think I've got a st- I can stake a claim, at least in like a room for me and Bertie? Just turn up with your passport and be like, look, bitch, I'm a Churchill. Yeah, mine. passport and a packet of baby wipes for the cat and we'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> Alina, what about you? Really torn, like really fucking torn. Um... But just can I say, Heather, you did a really good job of me. Thank you so much. That was really fucking awesome. Um, Heather's had so much overtime. She didn't have time to do a whole one on her own, which is why you went together. So well done. Um, look, ancient history and kit. I love it. Uh, I love Lucky Luciano. I've been watching Boardwalk Empire recently again. So I've really been drawn into that again. Um, and of course the craze, cause I can't go away from East London. Can I just pick three? Can that be my three, please? Cause I can't choose. Okay. Thank I'm you. I'm feeling nice. And also it doesn't really matter cause you're not a judge. So whatever. <laughs> Chris. Microphone bingo. I think everyone waits for this moment, don't they? Yeah. Every week. Yeah, he's done the hand signal that says I'm going to fuck off and come back in again. Merrin, what about you? God, Merrin's been there in silence for ages. That's all right. Um, so I, I have a bit of a bit of a thing for the Borgias, and I have a, th- a little bit of thing for Genovese anyway. And I, you know, anything that's a little bit linked to the mafia, I find interesting. But what I find even more interesting is this, is this idea that we're fascinated. Perhaps through our own vulnerability, we we start to um, celebritize families like the craze. We start to see in them the, the purported strength that we don't have in our own lives. And that's why we elevate them to this kind of weird pedestal where they become celebrities and it becomes a good thing. Um, worst family? Yes, the craze. I'm going to read you a quote. So the guy that wrote this book, John Pearson, actually spent a lot of time with them because what they initially wanted him to do and what he didn't have to do in the end because they got banged up was write their biography and make them famous. But that's categorically not what he did in the end. I think he had to be a little bit careful. But he said at the end of the book, he basically, there is a really good, and this was the only bit that didn't fuck me off about the whole thing. And it's nothing to do with his writing. He's a a meticulous and fantastic writer, but it's the subject matter. But he writes a really interesting like essay at the end about why Mm -hmm. we're obsessed with them. And he said, any society, oh, it says, so society 
He's, I go, go back a bit further. The Cray twins are important, not as cheap murderers, but as professionals of violence. And it's their career, not their downfall, that is significant. Society was lucky that they destroyed themselves. Another time we may not be so fortunate. He says any society that lets two Cockney villains get away with what the Crays did must be quite frighteningly vulnerable. And if nothing else, their rise to power shows just how fragile the whole skin of order is in Britain. Um, and this is brilliant from the end. He says, he, he quoted Salman Rushdie, when murderers become celebrities, something has gone seriously wrong. But what and why did it happen with the craze? Part of the answer is that the twins were determined that it should long before they were arrested. The pursuit of fame is actually extremely rare among criminals and successful criminals, almost by definition, tend to be modest, self-effacing human beings. All good as a all a good burglar, con man, forger, or swindler asks of life for the pleasures of obscurity and the modern joys of happy anonymity. Not so the twins. Fame really was the spur that drove them on from puberty until practically the day they were arrested. It's it's not the sadism, it's not the violence, it's the forceful manipulation, it's the intent to be evil that make that sets them apart other yeah. families they did they did some really bad stuff and perhaps responsively the borgias particularly what they did was in response to the environment in response to the you know the the situations in which they found themselves but the craze were malevolent it, it was manipulation that was intent on causing the the, the disruption it did and that's that's just evil it's, mm. it's an evil intent chris um, Yay! I'm going to be a bit. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be obvious and vote for the Caesars for two reasons. Um, one of them is because Julius killed all those Germans, and the second is because Alina showed you her cleavage. <laughs> um, no, well, no, yeah. All um, right, three reasons. Right, hang on, I've got a phone call. <laughs> 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 uh, just Alina in general. So. Um... Oh. Oh. Go, go on, Alina, give him another flash. <laughs> Chris wins the booby prize. <laughs> Chris won the booby prize at about quarter past seven. Right, okay. Kate, what about you? I was quite horrified by the whole craze thing. Um, I, I don't think I fully appreciated the extent of their, um, of what they did. But, it was mostly one brother and a little bit the other brother and a little bit the dad and the mum was sort of a bit shit. Uh, you say that, but Reggie full on was murdering people by the end. Okay. So then, then, but I, my. But always I, led by Ronnie, always. Yeah, exactly. Um, my actual choice would be, um, Chris's blood family. Just was it blood? No, not blood. So Bender. Bender, whatever it was, bloody Benders people. Basically, because they reminded me of the film Deliverance, and now I've got the song Julian Banjos in my head, and I can't get it out. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one. (laughs) Oh, Heather, what about you? Definitely would go for Craze. They're just. Do you know much about them in America? Was that all news to you? Um, I heard a little bit about him when uh, Legend was making the rounds in the theaters. They would talk about it. And that was the extent of my knowledge. Yeah, I just wondered if it was something that had spread to the States to the extent that if you said the Cray twins in America would go, oh, yeah, I, I know who they are. Even if I don't know much about them, I know who they are. Maybe a little bit, but probably compared to England, not much at all. 
wonderful Kip, who's just reclining in bed now. <laughs> I am. Um, so I, I was disgusted by the benders. Um, and I'm not going to forget that story. I'm disgusted by the craze and the fact that the legend persists. But even greater than that, I think the legend of the Tudors and how they've managed to worm their way into popular consciousness, um, despite being a bunch of shitbags. Um, I'm going to have to have you give it to Kate. Yep. And it Thanks, Bags as well. James, what about you? I'm actually going to also go for the Tudors because the amount of issues and influence they've caused even now, it's, yeah, they're just a bunch of shit bags. <laughs> Beth? Um, I'm going to go to the Bender. Um, I am a very I've emotional person, as we have all come across, and just the thought of it being a very small child anyway, and then it being a toddler, and just very graphic and very intense, just was just was just very awful for me, um, and and really hurt me, mm. like in my heart. So the benders, judges, has everyone had a go? Yeah, judges. What about you? I mean, there have been some really, really horrible, horrible people. Families come out tonight, but the Borgers probably come out as the nicest bunch of the evening. So I'll leave it to Andrew to give us our podium positions. Despite us having two in third place, it's a unanimous decision. I know it doesn't sound like that, but it genuinely is. I think because Alex made such a strong case for the craze at the end, um, we've got Alina and Heather slash Alex in third place. Oh, yay! Hey! Um, That's an achievement, because obviously Clive has always known some of my argument and was like, our oh, craze won't come anywhere. Because yeah. he was saying that even the Richardsons were bigger shitbags than the craze. Um, second, first and second are, are, are quite similar. And they're, uh, we have to go way back to about an hour, at least an hour or a half ago, or maybe longer. Second place, we've got Merrin. Shocked. It's because Mary can't even remember what she said now. No, it, it, it does in comparison to everybody else's great lengthy spiel. I, I did like, 30, it felt like 30 seconds of chucking people down mine shafts, mate. It. it was the mine shafts that did it. That really got you up there. It's a total lack of motivation as well. It's like, but, done. By, by a nose or an 18 month old child, it was Obi Ginger Kobe, Kenobi, who uh, aced it this week because they quite, I think what it was the child and also the fact that they got away with it and disappeared and we never know what knew what happened to them. <laughs> so they could be <laughs> that was your reward, Chris. <laughs> you keep winning more often now. <laughs> He's gonna start going in for some incentive. I spent eight days getting ready for this one. I think we basically went for one and two because it was an entire single family unit behaving horribly. The rest were either spread out over longer generations where some people were all right or others were, you know, people would have done that whatever at the time. Whereas I think these two were actually quite despicably horrible yeah. family units. And although Merrin won on body count, we thought that the benders were slightly worse overall in what they did and they, they weren't caught. That's the sort of, Basic I think the fact now is that every week we're going to get a gratuitous poor dead child thrown in, though, just to 
for leverage with the judges. Or Schwarzenegger. Or a dead child with Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Or, 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 or the accents. Or cleavage. Yeah. Or all of them. Well, if, you, if you make Chris the judge, the cleavage will do it. <laughs> Turn up five minutes before the end. You won't have heard anything else. Who wins? Alina. <laughs> Thank you for my new um uh what's the word? Oh my god, I can't even speak English anymore. My new tactic, that's the one. Yeah, brilliant. Uh if only you'd known you could have got all your way through life just doing that it would have been a hell of a lot easier. Uh right, okay. Thank you very much. Uh not sure what we're gonna do next week. Next week will be the last time that we do a weekly one. I think we'll have a little break after that, uh because we'll be hopefully coming out of lockdown and be able to actually meet each other for real soon. <gasps> Obviously Alina and Heather aren't looking particularly happy about that because they're not gonna get in the country anytime soon. But we'll take cardboard cutouts with us of you. We'll zoom you, we'll zoom you <laughs> from the pub. How's that? No, because Chris might take it home. <laughs> yeah, God knows what he did. Let's not do that. Oh, don't thank. That's brilliant. So we the 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 poor dead baby's got nothing on that mental image. Everybody's leaving the pub with now. Thanks. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.